Well, hello and welcome to another session of the Corona Committee. It's our uh, 124th meeting and it's called Down the Rabbit Hole. There are topics that are a bit uh, difficult to understand. Why do things happen in lockstep across the world? So the same thing everywhere. And you kind of wonder, is that a global organization that's behind it? Or are it are they uh, global commitments that um, make this possible? And we'd like to get to these questions. And I'd mentioned it last time already to look at the involvement of the media agencies, what's controlled, where things come from, um, or maybe um, access is eased, uh, and then there might be military interests, interest groups. Who knows who's pulling the strings where? And there are, of course, situations where we can see whether there are uh, personal uh, involvements uh, one way or the other, where people might be blackmailed or whatever. So we'd like to um, hear something about this by the last uh, guest of the day. And we'll uh, look into these uh, topics. Um, and. Uh, that's what we'll deal with. Uh, we'll look at Jeffrey Epstein and his network of, well, possible high society people who might be involved in uh, a few things. He said at one point um, that his um, reinsurance was to um, smudge certain people that he could um, show and make public, which might be an insurance for him or might be um, interesting for other people as well. So these are interesting uh, topics. And we need to look at what happens geopolitically. We uh, saw this uh, detonation um, on the uh, North Stream pipeline. Uh, some say we're in the middle of the Third World War. Is that true? And who's behind what? Who's responsible really where? Uh, uh, do the strings come together and we must not close our eyes to any options here and really take a close look. And uh, we have to deal with the energy problems and as well. This committee started as a corona investigative uh, committee, but we can see that many of the structures that were responsible for uh, the corona uh, events, uh, the uh, corona measures that you can identify like a spider in a net, that they might be pulling the strings elsewhere as well. So it is absolutely necessary to go beyond the corona uh, issues proper. We will do this. And so we see the corona topic as a catalyst, as a trigger. But the whole thing goes much deeper. We used to look uh, beyond the pale. Um, and we will have to take an either, even wider look going forward. And we'll do that more intensively. We'll start today with that. But now we'll um, welcome the first guest. And I'd like to welcome Wolfgang Wodark um, on the Zoom. Wolfgang, it's good to have you. And so our first guest is Dr. Christian Fiala, and I'm talking with Vienna. 
Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for the invitation. It is exciting and it'll continue to be so. And uh, I'm happy to be able to contribute a couple of medical conclusions to the overall geopolitical situation. Well, fantastic. We had just been uh, talking about this um, a bit. So there are two topics that are quite topical. Uh, we had been dealing with the um, topic of uh, possible infertility the last time, and Professor Bhakti had pointed out this uh, early on, as you had, Wolfgang, that we have to uh, expect a few um, side effects there by these untested preparations that were injected into people there. And now it turns out that these uh, forecasts were not um, unfounded and that there's something uh, quite um, important about this and we have to look at this because some people are of course still faced with the decision as to whether or not they should get the injection or people might uh, decide to um, opt against this and um, we need to help them understand what's happening here. You had looked uh, into two aspects of this uh, topic in more detail or this topic and another topic that's uh, related to it. Maybe you could briefly introduce yourself so that everybody knows who you are. Okay, my name is Christian Fiala. I'm a, a general practitioner and specialist in gyne uh, gynecology and obstetrics. And um, I'm in Vienna now, uh, focusing on uh, unwanted pregnancies, prevention and um, uh, therapy. And I'm curious and critical in a scientific uh, way. And I actually um, have an, a PhD in scientific research. So I'm one of the few physicians who are, actually have a, a background in science um, scientific methods so I can interpret studies and I have been observing this COVID uh, thing with great interest uh, critically like a scientist should be uh, never stop questioning Einstein is reported to have said so we should never stop uh, asking questions and I think that is one of the most interesting parts of life uh, of all and if, but if you ask questions in the context of COVID then you are uh, dealt with roughly, you don't get um, proper answers, but it's a confirmation really of what I'm doing or what I what one should do. And it, it doesn't stop me at all. It motivates me to ask more questions, to dig deeper. And I think the situation is more than serious and I'm happy if we can talk of a few things, um, such as Viviana said already, uh, the birth rates, um, it's very difficult to statistically pin down fertility because there's so uh, much uh, fluctuation in um, the occurrence of spontaneous abortions and um, pregnancies. Um, so we had to wait a bit before we could make statistically clear statements. And one of them is the birth rates because there are reliable data that we can interpret, of course. And Helmut Hagemann uh, from Germany, a statistician, um, analyzed the births and uh, came up with this extremely worrisome uh, analysis that birth rates in uh, nearly all European countries dramatically decreased 
um, over the first few months of this year, uh, Switzerland, Austria, Germany, and other countries, and that this is a contradictory or um, is a um, about turn in terms of the trends uh, of the last 10 years where we had a trend towards increasing birth rates. And uh, this was um, a trend that we had for the last 20 years. And if that is not enough, he finds statistically very um, uh, significant um, that it is nine months, that it starts nine months after the first vaccinations. And that is something that should uh, give us uh, reason for pause. It's not proof of causality, so a temporal relationship doesn't necessarily mean a causal relationship, but the intensity of this correlation is extreme and it's unusual. And um, there are other aspects as well that we have to take into consideration. In November and December of last year, the third wave of vaccinations started. And from Switzerland, we have the data uh, of July, the birth rates from July, and they kept dropping. So they're still lower than those of the prior years, 2019 through 2021. There was a, a drop of 13% compared to uh, the birth rate of those years uh, in 2022. That is unbelievable. Maybe I can share my screen with you and then I can show you briefly this graph here where you can see uh, the births in uh, Switzerland in the last four, uh, last few years. And you can see that in the first six months of this year, there was a massive reduction compared to the other countries shown here. And this uh, decrease accelerated again in July, 13%, even though we have to say that might uh, be a little bit less because there might be some um, figures that haven't been reported yet. But these um, figures, July figure, uh, may be an early warning sign that we are looking at even worse data if we look at the results uh, nine months after the third vaccination. That would be um, July, August, September, of course. Um, what's the reaction to that? Do we hear anything from Switzerland? Did you look at what the people say about this? Is it commented on the from by the government? Well, generally, this is completely hushed up. In Austria, we uh, made a press release um, uh, together with the Austrian press agency, the APA, and that was the uh, uh, press release most uh, read uh, for 10 days. Normally, when you do that, uh, if you uh, have the most uh, widely read press release uh, for a single day, you put it on the wall because it's a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. And I've never seen that a press release was the most widely read press release for 10 days running. But the most absurd thing was that none of the main media, mainstream media um, covered it at all. Nothing, nothing at all. Complete silence. And I sent it to the gynecological um, society uh, that all gynecologists are members of and I um, thought that these uh, this um, essential information would be spread among the membership and I never even got an answer that's horrible um, this ignorance and looking away 
these blindfolds that people are putting on in order not to see, that's what we meet everywhere. So what happens in the hospitals themselves where you work, your hospital? Do you note that anybody notices this? Is that uh, talk about that, that this may be uh, adverse effects of the injections? Not at all. It's a taboo, completely. And it's also uh, true that the adverse effects of the, or maybe the main effect of the um, vaccination, i.e. Um, the, the, the damage um, is ignored or denied by most colleagues. And uh, then they say he has the second uh, corona the second time, even though he has been vaccinated three times over. And then we might say, uh, sorry, maybe it's not COVID. Maybe it's only uh, an indication of a uh, severe immune deficiency caused by the um, COVID vaccination. Nobody wants to know about this nearly. It's really a wall of silence here, a wall of uh, displacement. And I don't want to um, fall back on any historical precedents, but it is extremely uh, worrisome and striking that particularly in the health system where it would be our job to look after people's health, there's not even a discussion about the causes. And I don't know if you've seen it as well in the publications which are being published on immunological topics, tumor to, uh, cancer topics, other topics. And there's always an ongoing thing. For example, the the child, and ch child hepatitis, which suddenly turned up. If you look at that, and if you look at the question whether an MRR injection played a role in that, and whether that may be a bias, uh, as a major factor affecting the results, I never see this. It's always excluded. And it'd be good to have someone who can check the scientific publications, whether that is really considered, because it's a massive, um, a massive uh, work on the on the health of the population. And if that is not done, uh, you can throw all that work away. Well, I find it extremely worrisome. Uh, the job of science would really be now to do the exact opposite uh, of what religion does. Uh, the, the, the job of science is to question <laughs> and never to stop questioning. Uh, a scientific a, a definition of science would be the questioning. That's the interesting in religion. Sorry, the, the interesting in science, the boring thing about re religion. Uh, religion. That's a nice. Uh, that, that's the boring thing about religion that we have a belief, and then we have a bit of discussion about whether we uh, focus more on Maria or on Mary or on um, Jesus. But that is what's so interesting about uh, science that we keep questioning things. And uh, with this vaccination, what happens is that, or what they call a, a vaccination, and that's been discussed so many uh, times that it's not a vaccination in a classical sense, but an planned autoimmune destruction. And I uh, compiled an article for that in order to make it more understandable uh, for people to explain that a normal uh, vaccination, you inject a weakened um, pathogen, the immune system recognizes it and destroys this pathogen. And what happens with these 
uh, corona uh, vaccinations now is fundamentally different. It could be uh, done this way, but it was deliberately done in a different way. Uh, the um, building plan for the spike pre uh, protein is injected into the body uh, via mRNA and healthy uh, cells and make this um, uh, the spike protein that the immune system can recognize and the uh, um, immune system will then not only destroy the spike protein but the cell that carries it. So what's called a uh, vaccination here is really a planned autoimmune cell destruction of a massive scale. I think that needs to explain the way, as you've just said, so that the cell is detected as alien because it is turned alien if that mRNA is in it. It's not our cell anymore. It's got something new and then the immune system will kill this cell and that is what creates the damage. So that means our body, like in autoimmune defects, uh, fights its own cells because it can't detect them as uh, proper cells, cells of its own. Exactly, because uh, they put the spike protein uh, on the surface of the cell. It's a bit as uh, smart as putting um, the uh, opponents, uh, the enemy's uh, call sign on our planes in a war, uh, and then our own troops will shoot down our own planes. That's exactly what happens, and you can imagine how long does this process go on? Well, until all the... Uh, planes and tanks have been destroyed and then the war has been won. In this case, it uh, goes until all the um, vital cells have been destroyed and then uh, the person dies as a consequence of this uh, targeted autoimmune cell destruction. You don't need an enemy if you fight against yourself. Exactly. And those aren't things that we... Uh, imagine uh, they're well uh, published it's also on the product information and I published it and then uh, the Chamber of uh, Physicians um, reported me um, um, and said that's wrong they started the disciplinary uh, action against me and I said okay we can dis discuss this that's what uh, science is all about and uh, I was only given the expert opinion that proves that I'm wrong after I had been um, given a penalty of 10,000 euro because I claimed something incorrect. Well, that's, that's prior Galilee. Well, at least I'm allowed to live. Um, so I appealed against it. So this uh, judgment is not um, legally binding yet. But we have to see uh, what danger um, the um, physicians' representatives exposes people's health to if they stop physicians from thinking for, uh, for their own selves and uh, puts a um, uh, penalty on it um, that is actually threatening people's livelihoods. Um, if you make a, a statement and you get a penalty of 10,000 euro, then you can't talk of uh, democracy and freedom of uh, speech anymore. It's not only about me. Uh, what really worries me is the uh, threat to people's health that goes with it. So first of all, I see that as a com um, um, impressive uh, confirmation of my uh, considerations because if that was all wrong they wouldn't deal with it or else say um, give three or four arguments why I'm wrong and then move on but the fact that 
they put a penalty on it and, you know, in hopes of uh, silencing me is an inherent confirmation. But above all this approach, if that really becomes commonplace, then it shows how weak the system is. And in our um, uh, in the history of uh, medical science, we have many examples of what can happen then. Um, thermal, um, thermal, uh, thermalide um, is, of course, an example that um, shows what happens. And there was a doctor at the time who um, warned early on that uh, children are born with defamations that could be linked to this medication, um, which was then uh, licensed without proper uh, testing, just like this vaccine now. And instead of um, um, the physician's um, chamber saying, okay, that's interesting, let's look into this, he was actually uh, sued by the manufacturer to uh, silence him. So. Uh, the uh, it didn't change the situation it only extended and accentuated the um the number of um, people affected and i see the same problem now um it doesn't change anything concerning the the damage but more people will be affected by it well the uh dr chambers really uh, are culpable for this. They should organize the discussion instead of uh, covering it up. That would be their duties. Uh, they are necessary. Uh, they are required to do this. It's their job. And uh, if they watch um, what's going on, then uh, they, they are not doing their job and they are culpable. Yes, and of course, from the point of view of the patients who we are there for, actually, it's a disaster because patients trust physicians and their self-organization by the physician's chamber. And uh, it's not like we're in a um, party organization like uh, the, the um, Communist Party of uh, the Soviet Union or in the Vatican um, where people can't talk. Well, we do you have any contact with uh, fertility centers? No, I haven't looked into that yet, but uh, it would be difficult to um, capture this statistically because the success rates, so-called success rate of this uh, in vitro fertilization is very low anyway. It's below 20%, so the so-called baby take-home rate, as they uh, call it, so the percentage of couples that actually go home with a baby um, is below 20%, and that is pretty bad. And so uh, most centers uh, show this in a different way than they show the pregnancy rate, which is higher. And they don't say that there are many uh, spontaneous abortions, and many of those pregnancies don't lead to a, a birth of a healthy child. However, it could be an interesting indicator to see that they are getting an extra boom, that people go there and uh, or that they note that the uh, pregnancy rate is dropping because people come there because they have problems of course but maybe um, if we look at it as it is a quite a short period of time um, the newly affected woman may not immediately go to uh, such a center and try to um, re receive naturally Yes, and most of these clinics are private clinics that aren't uh, 
obliged to publish their uh, figures and have no interest in doing so. But I always keep uh, thinking about how can we make progress here. And as I said, the, the um, um, period is very uh, difficult to grasp. There's such a wide variation of spontaneous abortion that is somewhere between 4 and 20 percent, according to different studies. So any fluctuations here are difficult to grasp. What is, however, um, um, palpable is the um, uh, fertility. And so the first finding is that one and a half years after the mass vaccination started, there is a first study on the sperm quality in men. And we have to say it's not difficult to do that scientifically. It's easy to do. You can repeat it relatively frequently. So if we have a had a uh, an approval system that would be the minimum requirement that there should be a, um, a test of uh, sperm quality uh, before there is approval or at the start of approval and it took a year and a half before um, the first study was published in Israel now and that found that uh, it looked at uh, sperm donors before the vaccination and then up to six months after the second vaccination, and they found that the uh, number of sperms and their uh, mobility significantly decreased by about 30%. And what's also interesting is that they say, okay, this is only transitory because after six months it uh, changed again. But if you take a look at the figures, it hardly improved six months later, and then the studies ended, were ended after six months, and there are no long-term data available yet. But, and we have to say, uh, there's been mass vaccinations for a year and a half, and the longest data that we have, um, the longest study periods that we have about sperm quality um, is six months. That's a, a huge scandal. And maybe they were only uh, able to uh, publish this, that's my own assumption now, because they uh, trivialized it uh, in the title, because they spoke of temporary uh, decrease in sperm quality. But that might be the cause of the uh, decrease in uh, um, birth rates. Um, that might be one factor, maybe some factors in the female um, uh, body uh, also have an effect. That's the animal testing that was done with nanoparticles, looking at the contribution, at the distribution in animals. There was a Japanese study which showed that it, to a substantial um, amount, collects in the uh, Govard. And uh, why should it be different? And the fairy tale that they tell us told us that it's just a reaction in the upper arm. That's a pure lie. And that is um, published by the Paulelli Institute on a request. That was the answer after an inquiry after the first months. And they said it's in the arm only. Yes, we had a health minister in Austria who is a uh, physician. And I think he was never um, reported to the police uh, because uh, that he uh, that the intramuscular uh, injection stays in the muscle tissue, which isn't true, and this is documented. Nevertheless, he's still a physician and is still allowed to practice, but it has been proven that this is not the case. And he said it on TV. 
We know that it distributes across the body um, uh, in a random way, and that is uh, something that is so extremely uh, worrisome. Uh, the inexistence of uh, organ specificity of um, adverse effects, normally any medication that we apply has um, side effects and they are all usually well described they uh, are restricted to one organ so you uh, might have neurological problems if you take aspirin for instance you may have indigestion etc those are clearly defined side effects and they have to do with the um, me method of uh, operation and here there's no specificity of uh, side effects so they uh, well there's a couple of everywhere yeah, they're spread all over the body, and that is really a disastrous in uh, its re uh, importance because the damage we see is not specific to individual organs, but it is completely random depending on where these um, uh, vaccines uh, migrate in the uh, body and what that means in the midterm, I don't really imagine, can't, can't really imagine yet. Well, you can only stochastically look where does the lymphs go, where does the blood go, and what is where. And then if you eject uh, often 5% is the uh, assessed that, um, measurement that it goes into the blood, straight into the vein, and uh, that the blood-brain barrier uh, doesn't hold it out. All of these things that... Uh, amplify the diversity of the symptoms and the severeness of the symptoms and that is not assessed at all and the distribution models in human beings i think they weren't uh, done even not retrospectively right uh, pfizer biontech actually submitted it to the japanese authorities this study and the um, blood-brain barrier is uh, very important. There are uh, two such blood barriers in the body. The one stops uh, blood entering the brain, um, the immune immune system, uh, and the other one is in uh, the testicles. Uh, there's a blood testicle uh, barrier, and these nanoparticles can cross that as well. So they can actually uh, um, get the um, uh, sperm uh, cells to uh, produce uh, spike protein again. Again, And if you take a step back um, and look at these various aspects and put them together like a puzzle, then uh, the dimension of it all becomes palpable. So we have a vaccination that is really not necessary. We never spoke about this yet, but the uh, COVID vaccination is is comparable with a, a flu and um, that's another statement uh, that uh, was worth a, a penalty of 5,000 5, euro. Well, I was lucky then. I've said this many times before. <laughs> well, I, I always get a penalty when I say that sort of thing, but it's well documented that the uh, COVID infection is comparable to a flu um, um, infection, so the fear that was uh, created wasn't necessary, and based on this fear, many people were uh, urged, um, convinced to take this vaccine that then led to incredible um, implications in, throughout the body, and now we see um, excess mortality, so people die from the top. Um, the excess mortality has been well documented, particularly yes. with old people. Very clearly, yes. 
and um, uh, psychologist Kubankal have shown it in Australia. We can see a clear correlation between an increase of uh, mortality and uh, this vaccination. The more often you're uh, vaccinated, the more uh, the higher the mortality. So people die from the top, and uh, from the other end, there's fewer people um, being added. And there are uh, uh, there's a, a study from uh, the uh, UK that looked at uh, babies born in uh, the year of 2020, uh, looking at the uh, development of um, babies. Uh, comparing them with babies born before the measures, and we have a uh, reduction in development above 27 to 33 percent. What were the parameters there? Well, I can share that study later on. Um, we have seen that in the publication as well, and we included it in our work. This uh, slow development is on all levels, and that is something that is extremely concerning as well. And the authors note this. You don't know whether this delay in development can be cut, caught up with or whether it will be permanent. And now we are only beginning to see the effects of these uh, corona vaccinations because uh, end of last year we had the third shot and this year the fourth shot uh, parts and so the concern is that the effect that we see on uh, uh, um, uh, death rates and so on will increase and be more amplified over the time and what do they say to to explain um, this developmental retardation, is it due to mask wearing or vaccination effects or what? Well, first of all, it's an observation only and the interpretation, uh, I uh, assess this with a mask. And that's very interesting because it's not only the adults and the children who were forced to wear masks and then the children, it was um, examined a lot with pregnant women. I don't know that everybody and anybody ever looked at this. So I looked into it and the conclusion is, again, incredibly frightening because the fetus can't breathe itself but it gets the oxygen from the placenta and the CO2 is um, exhausted through the blood of the woman. And so that means the fetus always has less um, oxygen and always more CO2 in the blood than the pregnant woman has. And if the woman um, has a normal adult CO2 level, then all the children would be um, would have a problem because CO2 is a very toxic substance. Um, also, even if it is increased only a little bit, we see that some women towards the end of the pregnancy have uh, um, breathing breaks in um, when they sleep. And the children of these women have problems in adaptation. adaptation when they get born. They are delayed in their development. They need more um, intensive care. 
And now we have to fear that the women who wear the mask during pregnancy will produce exactly the same um, phenomena in the children as that uh, stop breathing in sleep. So they have more CO2 in the blood and that poisons the children. Well, the other mecha uh, mechanism is then we find something similar with smokers who uh, keep smoking during pregnancy. It's more the uh, carbon monoxide then that reduces the oxygen capacity of the uh, urocytes. Um, um, but it's probably comparable, this um, sort of damage that we have there. Well, it is very comparable, yes. And let me just quickly show you this how it what it looks like because the pregnant woman only indirectly give the co the oxygen to the child or take it from the child this is the chart here we see this that it is indirect and for the photos to get more oxygen and breathe out the CO2 quickly, there is a natural hormone in the pregnancy which makes women breathe more deeply and more quickly, and that reduces their CO2 in the blood compared to the normal adult population. And if we look at this this way, and this is how that exchange takes place, and if a pregnant woman, and it's well documented that the mask, uh, amongst other things, uh, has the increase of the CO2, and that means in the blood of the woman there is more CO2, and that means the photos can't um, dispose the CO2 to the mother. Uh, and there is more CO2 in the blood of the photos when the woman wears a mask. And this is, of course, especially pr um, prominent during birth. And uh, there are reports that women were forced to wear a mask during birth and during delivery. And uh, the point is that the photos can't breathe during, um, uh, during delivery um, as there's no change, no exchange of blood anymore. Well, I can't breathe anyway yet. Yes, um, but there's no blood pushed into the uh, placenta. And uh, only during the uh, break um, of the pressing, uh, the photos can breathe. And if the woman wears a mask uh, during delivery, this essentially important exchange of gases is pr uh, restricted. It's madness. You go. The gradient um, of uh, concentration, the difference of the gr concentration between oxygen and uh, CO2. Uh, we always have a movement from more to less to balance it out. And if they are uh, the same, then there's not much exchange. Precisely. That's what um, we have in the normal uh, case. So the CO2 can only be given um, or pass from the fetus to uh, the pregnant woman if um, uh, the woman has, the mother has a higher, uh, lower uh, CO2 level. 
Yeah, and then there is something and no more will go. Okay, that's quite right, yes. And of course, um, we can't see this and it's not visible and uh, it's difficult to find these doing birth and right after birth. And uh, it's a problem that we may be awaiting an avalanche like thedolomite, um, at least from the women who were wearing a mask. And that's absolutely not mentioned at all. Well, it says here that uh, there's uh, about 30% of children uh, with uh, developmental uh, retardation. What is the normal level? That's a good question. Uh, it's loss a lot less. Uh, but I can't say this at the moment off a cough. But it is... Um, comparison was with children before born before the measures were implemented so that's oh, uh, the baseline basically yes that was the growth or the additional um, amount um, compared to the children born before the measures was that a kind of monitoring that was applied uh, as a matter of routine um, so the developmental level uh, so that was always done before um, the start of the measure, so that the same measurement parameters and methodologies could be used that had been used before the uh, intervention injection, um, so we could compare because it was measured under the same conditions. That is really what you should call for in this case. Yes, well, coincidence in uh, inverted commas, a long-going study which had a completely different goal, um, where the developmental uh, disorders of newborn children were monitored, uh, or that of children then later on. It's a long-term study, and now the measures dropped into it, and uh, they did a separate uh, assessment of that. So that was kind of a, a U1 and U2 uh, examination um, that you looked um, right after birth and then a few months later uh, that that kind of classical examination probably or maybe a bit more extensive it will be interesting to see what exactly happens there and i think you will get this study and then we can see what parameters were actually uh, looked into yes surely and is there a um, an awareness for this uh, is that something that you um, uh, learned about as a woman or or as a gynecologist or a pediatrician in Austria, do they know that? Uh, they say, oh, there's more children um, that have de de developmental disorders or whatever. No, no, not at all. It is completely um, concerning that there is actually no awareness of this at all. This, for example, is that uh, study and I've said this, I um, informed the uh, Gynecologists Association there uh, about this observation and they didn't even answer. And again, this correlation, so these coincidental um, coinciding developments are not a reason for cause, but it is, they make it necessary to discuss it, whether there is a 
causal relationship in between the two and um, there is a high probability that this is the case and so this needs to be discussed and as it is not being discussed that is really something that is scandalous i'll put the link into the zoom so that you can copy it yeah that's a good idea thanks this monitoring that's ongoing of certain health parameters in children and newly born and in adults as well that we observe certain things to see whether environmental changes take an effect or when therapies change that only take long-term effects so, for example, if we have adverse effects that only appear after two, three years, that is something you can't really see. It's very difficult to find the cause, and this is why these studies are so important, that are ongoing to see other people doing well and uh, compare this to certain parameters. I did that with the flu season. What are the agents, how people get sick, how many people are hospitalized? That was the orientation and why I was so sure in the beginning that this is not a pandemic or epidemic or whatever else, that uh, it was a new flu and they were just talking about other things and was tested differently than before. This can only be done if you do monitoring. And I think it's very important that we make sure that our health systems monitor our health but this is nothing that you do by private institutions this has to be done by the public health services that has to be made transparent and it mustn't be data that belongs to anybody because they don't like them so they can lock them away yes and i uh, mean at the beginning I, two years ago we had very little data available for criticism back then there was a lot of data as you said um, to, uh, to state that there's no uh, pandemic, nor, uh, nor even an epidemic, uh, because uh, mortality hadn't increased. But many of the things that we had feared back then were only indicators. And what we can see now is that these uh, fears are actually being um, corroborated. We actually have to be more strict about it. So the worst fears we had that we um, hardly dared think about two years ago seem to um, con be, get confirmed now. So it's so important that we don't make the same mistake like we did with uh, thalidomide at the time and look away, but that we look as early as possible, very closely, uh, drawing any necessary consequences. And let me point out um, a, a quote by a colleague from Vienna again, who is uh, the, was the manager of a health agency and then retired, who uh, put it very poignantly, because I think you've said it often enough, we have an epidemic of test, uh, testing, but not a infectious epidemic. What we measure and what we did right from the beginning is the activity of the testings and not the activity of the viruses. That's quite true. Um, I think uh, in Tumsvig he said that I, w I was there at the time. Yeah, yes, yes, we did um, see that. So looking at the development of the charts, can we get any readings from this saying whether the initial vaccination had the 
uh, effect, a special effect, if we assume that there is the correlation with the uh, shots, or can we see that it is a rip, the next one, the booster, whether they increased the effects or um, whether the first strike, so to say, was the first vaccination and it levels off and the effects moved away. Is there any notice? No, 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 no. Uh, you always have to keep thinking about the uh, method of operation uh, and that allows us to make conclusions, um, very severe conclusions. First of all, with every vaccination, a potential of uh, two times uh, 12 raised to the 10th uh, number of cells. So um, a body has 35 raised to the 10th uh, body cells. That doesn't necessarily mean that um, um, two times uh, 10 raised to the 12th, um, to the power of 12 uh, cells are killed, but that is the number of um, particles uh, you have in every injection. Uh, they are, by the way, made, among others, by a company in uh, Austria, and neither BioNTech nor uh, the company in Austria uh, were willing to say how many nanoparticles uh, are in uh, such an injection. That had to be estimated by other scientists, but it's an incredibly high number. And um, it's a bit like a uh, having a, um, swar uh, a swarm of birds and you shoot at them, uh, with a shotgun and uh, you don't know how many birds you kill, but um, the probability um, increases with every shot you take at the uh, at the swarm. So, um, and that is a, a clear uh, demand. That is the positive aspect that uh, people who got uh, vaccinated if they uh, several times if they stop uh, they have a good chance that it doesn't deteriorate anymore we'll have another guest today who will look at this from the other side i think it's very interesting the people many people were lucky that they got a shot with nothing in it or something that didn't uh, work otherwise it wouldn't be explainable if uh, they got the shot and it had what it should have it always happened it was always toxic and if you're lucky, yeah, yeah. if you're lucky that the uh, shot wasn't in the fridge for a long time, it was uh, stored too warm, or the nanoparticles did not in contain any mRNA, mRNA, because it doesn't always work to put them in. It's always nice, this nice uh, ball with the mRNA in it, and it's a package that goes to the shell. That's uh, rubbish. It's a nano a debris really and a part of it it's compute garbage sometimes so sometimes this call this ball was formed but the production process is uh, very new and it's new technology and in this mass and the quantity of the material produced so by different companies that have to work together in logistics lots of people are lucky and uh, often that's used as a counter argument nothing's happening it's only a few people well, they were lucky that they got something that didn't work. But I don't know um, what to do about this, because uh, if we all got sick, I think uh, um, there would have been a revolution by now, because everybody knows many people who, are, who have been vaccinated, and if somebody got sick, 
at every shot, it wouldn't have worked. And as it is uh, thinned out, it's easy to sweep it under the rug. And uh, that is something that you have to keep in the back of your mind, um, that this plays a role and maybe it is deliberate. Quite possibly, yes. Uh, and that would uh, explain as well that so many uh, vaccines were ordered. The former uh, health minister in Austria said that four or five times a year there'd be a vaccination day and all of these um, doses were ordered and that might compensate for the fact that it doesn't uh, have an effect on every single one. Um, but uh, uh, let's get back to the uh, point that the conclusion is, one is that it's always toxic and the often, more often you get this uh, vaccination, the worse it gets. And what's even worse really is that this um, method of operation clearly shows that the intention behind the development uh, the uh, vaccination is exclusively and necessarily and exclusively is to kill as many cells as possible and hence as many possible uh, people as possible. If you look at the uh, method of operation of this vaccination, there cannot be any other, unfortunately, no other co possible conclusion. And that also means that we are actually faced with uh, criminal activity here and then uh, we might see a link uh, to other geopolitical events. A brief question, can we, maybe, is, is there some stupidity in this? Could this, could it be that this is just uh, naive? No, 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 no. Um, what is uh, really amateurish is the production. There was uh, a small charge of um, vaccines made and multiplied millions of times over. Uh, if you do that, imagine if um, your uh, baker around the corner uh, suddenly has to make uh, rolls for all of Germany. It's obvious that he won't be able to make it at the same quality. So there were obviously massive uh, drop of quality that wasn't planned. But uh, the uh, initial plan, the basic uh, method of operation, i.e. to trigger a self-destruction of the uh, immune system is obviously intended. There is no other way of interpreting it. This cannot be coincidental. There is no other benefit to be derived from it. And if I may point out again, uh, um, it was told uh, to us that if we get the vaccination, then our body will make antibodies. That is an incomplete statement. Uh, it's about telling uh, the, uh, the fairy tale of Hensel and Gretel. They go through the forest, they get lost, and then uh, they get to a cottage and there's uh, light from the, uh, the cottage um, and uh, they go in and they're saved. And that's the end of the story. We didn't, don't tell them what's waiting for them inside the hut. Uh, and how the story continues. And I think it's uh, similarly scandalous, scientifically scandalous, that the actual method of operation of this um, vaccination wasn't told us. Of course, it makes our um, body our body cells uh, produce spike protein. Yes, but they don't uh, tell us that uh, this means that the immune system then attacks our own uh, cell. And then, depending on where it happens, you have a my uh, myocarditis or a thrombosis in your brain or whatever, or you just die off. And that is the real scandal. If you wish that the, uh, that, uh, the, the methods of operation clearly shows us beyond any doubt that this is criminal activity.
of an uh, incredible dimension. And if this is possible in the health system, then you have to surmise, and I'm leaving my uh, area of specialization now, then we have to surmise that uh, in politics, in uh, the economy, this criminal energy uh, uh, also is manifest. And the publications of the WEF, you can also see, and it was clearly said that this pandemic was a test whether the population in cases of emergency will go along. And they did, it did, and they were happy about it. And we'll see what else um, the population is supposed to go along with. So it could well be a test, a practical test on the obedience. Um, it was easy to see who's obedient, wears the mask, wherever on the road, you could see easily at first glance who is obedient, who's not. And then the jabs were added made to make it more clear. And this health damage is massive. And we have to assume that it's not reversible depending on which uh, cells are damaged. If a few liver cells are lost, that is not so bad. But if you lose a few brain cells or heart muscle tissue, then that is irreversible and dangerous. It's life-threatening, really. And at the time in Wuhan, when this agent which uh, came out of that laboratory, which is designed in a way that nature wouldn't do it, and which was then uh, in the computer. That's the model for the so-called mRNA vaccines. The spikes that were constructed there, these dangerous spikes are used to produce that vaccine. And now the real coronaviruses have this uh, always uh, they have shaken off these uh, artificial parts of it uh, the normal um, viruses uh, like omicron is now like a normal part in the flu uh, in the flu cocktail so to say um, and these things that moves it into the lymphocytes and all these artificial bits of it uh, the coronaviruses don't need it but that was used as a model in order to produce the mRNA vaccines. That means we still build these antibodies against these um, dangerous Wuhan spikes. We produce them and they are not in the nature anymore, in nature anymore. And, and they uh, attack healthy cells and then they're destroyed. Good. Well, is there anything else that you would like to uh, mention? No, just uh, carry on. It's very important that we keep this up and uh, we see that this criminal power that uh, was reflected in the corona or manifested in corona and the vaccines uh, that it's going to manifest in other areas and uh, possibly um, make future very difficult and hard for us. Well, I think we can clearly see that it was at least a, uh, a certain um, negligence in dealing with other topics as well, for instance, the energy crisis, uh, whatever the causes be, but it's always, uh, well, the right measures aren't taken, always. Uh, for instance, uh, also with the uh, vaccination victims, uh, we should do all in our power to make sure that people get proper treatment, studies uh, would have to uh, be started. At many levels, uh, action is taken very negligently without much evidence.
So that is really quite striking. We don't see it in the medical field. The only We only see it in many other areas. Um, the war risk doesn't seem to be uh, so much of an issue whether we can expect a, a nuke to be dropped or whatever. Um, that's really played down, um, and I found find that very surprising. Well, we have a next guest who looks at this other area in a bit and uh, who will show us that in the energy shortage which is uh, put onto the population now that they think the same way and act the same way. I think Wolfgang Wismith is in the line. Yeah, all the best and for the future. And I'll be happy to uh, talk here again. Uh, Thank you. Yes, very enlightening. Okay. Well, Mr. Wismet, um, the energy crisis is the topic. You're an expert uh, on energy. Um, you have been uh, observing this topic for many, many years, and you've been very innovative in this field. I know that even back then, what was it, uh, 100,000 uh, roofs program, and it became the 200,000 roof program uh, to reinforce solar power production in Germany that you um, made a, a significant contribution here. You cooperated with Hermann Scheer, who was my colleague and uh, next door neighbor in um, Parliament. Um, um, pity is not uh, around anymore. Um, um, I would elect them immediately. But Gerhard Schröder as well, whom I um, experienced as a, um, um, a member of parliament, he was my chancellor basically, I always uh, defended him because people said he's with Gazprom, he's corrupt now, um, and I always defended him by saying, no, he doesn't do that for himself, he makes he does it for us. So we're not, um, cannot be blackmailed by the Americans so that we have a second option to uh, keep energy running for the European, for the German economy. And I really admired him uh, for uh, the strength that he had in implementing this and agreeing on it with Putin. And I found it great that Germany and Russia had normal relationships again, trade relationships, friendships, that was suddenly everything was open. And in uh, the uh, Council of Europe, I saw the Russian delegation. They were uh, next to ours. It was a big delegation, as big as the German one. And we often argued with them because there were big problems in Russia with democracy. And and they weren't um, picture um, uh, textbook Democrats, including uh, Putin, of course. But I did notice that the Russians love their children too, that they love to live the good life, that they're a reasonable people you can deal with. No Russian wants war. And I think um, the song uh, Masters of War by Bob Dylan says it quite uh, clearly that there's always people who ignite wars, who benefit from war, and we have to look at the war profiteers very closely. Sometimes it's only the armaments industry, sometimes maybe the energy industry. There are many interests involved, raw materials, etc. We will certainly uh, look at this topic in more detail at the next uh, meetings. But the fact to ha that we should have you here uh, may help us understand uh, what impact it has on Germany. Would you like to introduce yourself, Mr. Wismet? 
You're still muted. You you have to unmute yourself. Is it better now? Yes, it's better now. Yep. Oh, great. Because I'm not the great computer freak. Normally, my daughter takes on this role, but she's not with me today. Anyway, I'm uh, Wolfgang Wismet. I've been uh, 36 years ago. I um, founded a uh, photovoltaic company, GWU looking on theo photovoltaics and in the beginning nobody knew knew the word but um, we started all that topic and uh, in the beginning I sold small systems um, Ireland uh, off-grid systems so caravan gardening and so on and uh, that um, allowed us to get into big uh, wholesalers and uh, were listed there and uh, we brought this up and got moving and people still benefit from it although um, it's uh, over 30 years old and there's no modules returning so far well it's a family owned company right yes yes and coal was the in the government at the time and then Merkel was the environmental minister and there was the so-called thousand roofs program which was a joke really because in a single week there were 70,000 uh, inquiries and we could uh, serve thousand only only two people were uh, selected in the whole of Munich there's tons of stories let's cut it short and uh, with the uh, SPD, Social Democratic Party, uh, in October. Um, it's 40 years that I'm a member of that party, and I've moved that topic forward. Um, I don't have any function, and I'm not uh, an MP either, but I represented my topic everywhere. And with Hermann Scher, I was friend since uh, 87 where I bought his book and I visited him, him and we developed a good and deep friendship and I uh, had a number of uh, events with him, um, well visited and then the red-green government came up with the so-called 100,000 roof uh, program which you mentioned, more and more roofs with solar panels and when that phased out, it, the government said uh, there should be an EEG um, payment for it. In the beginning, it was quite high, and the goal was to start the market, boost the market, and then slowly reduce the payment at the that was the times of Gerhard Schröder and uh, people were skeptical as well and um, he could convince many people in the party and unfortunately um, he was missing uh, but I have to say that Gerhard Schröder picked up on the topic especially in the uh, election campaign which he lost 
by little. He advertised for that and was well received by the population, just like our uh, town mayor here in Wood, who saw this as an early topic and uh, he put uh, photovoltaics on all the schools. Um, he turned a landfill into a solar mountain. There's lots of uh, products, uh, points, projects like this, and he's got 70 to 80 percent in the elections and very strong and uh, nearly 50 percent um, in all the local parties. Those were the good old days, but what about now? Well, now, since um, the Merkel governments and administrations, our partner was involved, unfortunately, the EEG was uh, all murked up. And uh, it was a bureaucratic monster that was made of it. Every six months, there was a change. And the Greens were involved. Uh, so, um, Mr. Bucket, who was State Secretary under Mr. Gabriel, um, he came from Hesia, and he plays a, a very bad role in my point of view. And I have uh, confronted him a couple of times at events, twice in Berlin, once in Munich. And he says uh, seven gigawatts, which was good in good times, is something that we can't do anymore. If we do that without growth, well, now we would have 100 gigawatts more photovoltaics alone, um, let alone the other energy carriers. Uh, so we, we really self-destroyed it in Germany. And um, that's extremely sad. And this is why I criticize the Greens so strongly. Um, I have told Mr. Habeck um, about Russia. Well, that's where I became aware of you. Uh, you are quite courageous in confronting him there. Well, in Bayreuth, in his summer tour, and I told him, uh, Willy Brandt said, it's not the war, which is the father of all things, but pieces. And then Brunt also said, and I quoted him, we have to be good neighbors inside, domestically and internationally. And I added that uh, applies to Ukraine as well as to Russia. And I asked him to immediately start negotiations with Russia in order to work for a um, seize of arms or a peace. Otherwise, we will economically um, commit suicide and um, the consumers will bear the price if we make our country so weak, we'll damage everything. We won't be able to support the Ukraine just as a side effect. And uh, uh, Russia does not only have oil and gas, they have got all other raw materials that are important for a country like Germany. And for me, it is pure madness what's going on at the moment. And then he said, well, Putin, this murderous criminal, is something not to negotiate with. Well, we can and have to negotiate with everybody if it is about life or death or peace or war. That's what I said. And what really irritated me was Claudia Roth, who is um, now um, uh, does the culture in the chancellor's office, and um, 
He, she said, fuck the Russians when she was in Kiev. And that is something you don't say. And so we have to use every level in order to strengthen the partnerships between the cities of uh, Germany and Russia. It is about our own survival. And now with the package, they try to uh, get successful with it. Well, I wish great success to everyone, but uh, I hope that everybody does well. And solar could be a great lever for that. But now over the past years, uh, we have completely destroyed that topic. Instead of installing seven or 10 gigawatts, we dropped down to um, less than one. And that is, that is, that is over 3,000 co companies that went bust in that. I had to go through that as well. It's no good. You don't get money for from the bank for ages. I can only work with a positive uh, um, bank account. I have no credit line at all, and many stopped altogether. We were able to survive, luckily, and now people think um, I'm a winner of the war. I don't want war. Um, and the people got it now. Photovoltaic is one of the cheapest sources of energy, all the renewables, uh, not just photovoltaic. But we have to look at reality. And Germany, um, as we have uh, lost 10, 15 years, um, we are uh, Euro Green was only downwards, downwards, downwards. And um, now we need time. We need time to catch up. We have lack of material. We have lack of staff at the moment. And even if we didn't have these scarcities, we still wouldn't have. We still wouldn't have photovoltaic. It's such a bureaucratic monster now. You can't install a normal system quickly. It's utopian. And I told Mr. Harbig that he just pulls wool over our eyes. Uh, talking about the quick switchover, it's not possible because any city utility company have their own connectivity programs and all the terminals have to be released and provided and so on. It's impossible. And we need the Russian gas whether we want it or not. And there's not enough sun during winter times, only 20% of the overall yield per year, even less in November, December and January, we have a maximum 10% of the whole annual yield. So we need other uh, energy carriers as long, as long as we don't have hydrogen. And all of that has been completely destroyed and uh, blocked. And uh, this is what really irritates me. And, and actually, we would be ready to invest. Companies would be ready to invest. But we need the framework conditions. And with us, there's so many different levels and con needs, requirements, 10 kilowatts, then 25 and 30. They're all different in administration. Um, there's 10 different constellations or configurations um, with different rules, with a different rule set altogether. Isn't that intentional? That reminds me of the discussion 
Well, all the big utility companies are behind this, of course. And what uh, irritates me most in the public discussion and the mainstream media in Luntz and all the talk shows, uh, now we got the merit order um, that the uh, plant operators that uh, directly market their electricity, um, if they're bigger than 100 kilowatt hours, now they benefit over proportionally. So that's obviously the uh, hyper winners. But this is marginal. You can forget about that compared to the um, oil companies per quarter. They don't have 3 million, but 10 million of profit now. That's where things go wrong. And so it's all these digital companies like background that's behind us. They're only involved in the big ones. They're not involved in the small 100 uh, kW uh, uh, installation. And Rana Barkas, this uh, ominous uh, guy from the Greens, he uh, is working for one of these super foundations, speaking cynically, of course, an American foundation. And who's involved? Again, the known, the usual suspects that um, benefit from the corona business. And so it's, we are fighting a mafia here. And that is really what frustrates me. And um, then they come up with different names, so it's difficult to understand who is who. And um, they want to get the uh, new renewable energy business under their hands. But this is a peaceful energy. Everybody can do it themselves, and people understood it, and they do it more and more. And uh, it is also an opportunity for Germany, but it's not quick to do. And we have to do that with your brain switched on, and not as they do it now. So now we wonder, um, we can't, uh, I can't really even provide the offers uh, to suit the demand. And we have nobody who does any sales. We, uh, in the good days, we had 100 people. Now we've got 20, and uh, but they're coming back. So it's great potential there. And this is, of course, something that has to be put on the move again. And the 3,000 companies that vanished, um, they don't pop up from the floor from the ground just like the mushrooms and um, we need a good transition that's why we need cheap energy especially during winter and i do think that this attack is uh, complete dubious you don't know who's behind this and um, and well biden announced it he said it well maybe we could show that clip shortly can we have that clip from the producers Uh, Reuters, Andrea, you guys the first question. Thank you, Mr. President, and uh, thank you, Chancellor Schultz. Um, Mr. President, I have wanted to ask you about this um, Nord Stream project that you've long opposed. You didn't mention it just now by name, nor did Chancellor Schultz. Did you receive assurances from Chancellor Schultz today that Germany will, in fact, pull the plug on this project? Uh, if Russia invades Ukraine? And did you discuss what the definition of invasion could be? 
And then Chancellor Scholz, uh, wenn ich Sie fragen darf, um, if I may ask you, uh, Chancellor Scholz, you said there was some strategic ambiguity that was needed in terms of sanctions. I just wanted to know whether the sanctions you are envisaging and the EU is working on and the US as well are already finished, finalized, or is there still work ongoing? And you're not really saying what the details are. Is that just an excuse for Germany maybe to not support the SWIFT measures? Let me answer the first question first. If Germany, if, uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine again, then uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We we will bring an end to it. But, but how will you how will you do that exactly? Since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control. We will uh, I promise you we'll be able to do it. Thank you very much for your question. I want to be absolutely clear. We have intensively prepared everything to be ready with the necessary sanctions if there is a, a military aggression against Ukraine. And this is necessary. It is necessary that we do this in advance so that Russia can clearly understand that these are far-reaching, severe measures. It is part of the this process that we do not spell out everything in public because Russia could understand that there might be even more to come. And at the same time, it is very clear we are well prepared with far-reaching measures. We will take these measures together with our allies, with our partners, with the US, and we will take all necessary steps. You can be sure that there won't be any measures in which we have a differing approach. We will act together jointly is a good idea to say to our american friends we will be united we will act together and we will take all the necessary steps and all the necessary steps will be done by all of us together today, today to turning off and pulling the plug on Nord Stream 2 you didn't mention it you haven't mentioned it as i already said we are acting together we are absolutely united and we will not taking different steps. We will do the same steps and they will be very, very hard to Russia and they should understand. You recognize someone now, Chancellor? Okay. They are announcing it. Uh, we can do it. We'll do it. And Schultz says, yes, yes. We will turn the tap off to punish Russia. We'll kill ourselves to punish Russia. It's pure madness if you listen to this. It's uh, economic suicide, yes. Absolutely. And uh, that really hurt the enemy. They're making more money than ever. Well, I don't know. Now both lines are both pipelines are destroyed, aren't they? Well, no, no, no more gas possible. No, they say the tanks are full. I don't know how long that'll last. Um, they are raising the prices, 
And so the people, the individual households may be turned off because they can't pay for it. That's what's going to happen. And that's the bad stuff, really. And this is why they have such a good demand now. People know that they are going to run out of gas. They look at the sun and uh, see what what how they can get the energy from. That's good, but it's going to be it's made difficult for them. But it won't be no good in uh, winter because there's no uh, sunlight. Um, we're talking about winter now. The most trivial things have to be explained. It's unbelievable. Um, you kind of wonder who's governing us here. Don't they understand anything? They they should go back to primary school, really. Uh, how um, will we have photovoltaic energy in the winter? What about storage? Uh, by principle, all the conditions to connect them and to allow them and so on, install them, all the internal inter, um, renewable energies, self-supporting systems, that should be made more simple now to allow people to help themselves. Suspend things, yes. Yes, surely. And uh, I've criticized this publicly tons of times. Gabriel was at the commercial chamber once, and I told him that he is the greatest disappointment for me since I am in the party, his party. And afterwards, he said, um, I've, I've confronted him a couple of times with the bureaucratic monster from the Renewable Energy Act from on the Hammond chair was two pages. And uh, uh, it's about thousands now, I think thousands, 30,000 uh, pages. Um, it's completely not understandable, incomprehensible. Um, Ines Senker, who is in the Economic Forum of the SPD, she works at Becker, Bukma and Hent, a, a big uh, law firm uh, specialized on energy um, um, uh, legislation, they worked this out and she came up with 13, 14,000 pages of legal text concerning uh, photovoltaics and renewable energies. But I am confident because more and more people are starting to understand and one system uh, moves uh, or leads to the next and we get more and more. We can be happy that we've got the Chinese because the Chinese uh, luckily or unfortunately, however you want to say that, um, have um, produced 90%, 95% of the solar panels. And um, even the German um, transformer producers have their transformers produced in, uh, in China. So that is something. Um, you can talk about Mr. Osbeck what you want, but he did a lot of work in this sector and um, he made sure that we keep this one big manufacturer in Germany. There's only one company, Solovat, and a couple of other smaller ones who are still uh, active in producing modules, but uh, market-wise they are um, dwarfs compared to the Chinese. And this is something that you have to have good neighborship with Russia because China and Russia will stick together. At least that's what I think. Well, I'm not that well informed, but um, that's my impression. And if the Chinese stop delivering modules, then we're done with. Have, sorry.
Have there ever been uh, supply problems with? Well, the Chinese deliver quite uh, reliably, but um, there is difficulties, of course, with all that corona madness. Um, there was delays, and the transformers are the main bottleneck at the moment, because the capacities uh, have been reduced uh, due to capitalistic movements. Everybody's got to deliver their quarterly results, and uh, the solar industry was not excluded from that. And um, long-term thinking, as we used to have in the past, seems to be completely vanished. And um, if you plant a tree, it takes years to grow, and uh, uh, 50, 60, 100 years until it's big and you can yield the wood. Uh, and in economy, it's all be got to be right now. And uh, it's all without brains, really. It's not sustainable, no. Yes. And now the Amazon Amazons of this world, uh, they want to take over and who suffers is the SMEs and that, uh, in my point of view, is strategic. Uh, we've seen this in Corona that the uh, retailers were closed down. Who benefits? Amazon and Apple, homeschooling, home office, home whatever you may have. Um, so, well, tons of terms anyway. What we're doing now? We're home home, home conferencing. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, people don't meet, and um, that's what we saw. And now with the war, and now energy is made expensive, so that the camp companies can't um, work, and the big multi corporates will benefit. Facebook, Amazon, Google, Amazon, all these, they are the ones who benefit and uh, now they want to uh, push that uh, renewables, of course. Um, Amazon does advertising that they put photovoltaics on their warehouses, but they don't pay their people properly. I know people um, who um, were rented from us, she got 12 euro 12 per hour and she had to work every day from uh, 22 uh, hour, 100 hours to 6 o'clock in the morning earning 12 euros. That's modern slavery and all the couriers that have to, uh, are chased around to deliver the, par the parcels. Uh, for people to have a shopping experience, that's uh, and the bakeries now suffer from the high energy prices. Uh, butchers do, and uh, you're supposed to buy. Just imagine uh, the woman who worked there. She told me that they even deliver Coke, Coke in bottles. That's perverse. And the energy things. And the fracking is something that uh, irritates me. Now this dirty fracking gas is shipped to Europe with uh, heavy oil, heavy diesel oil tankers. Um, is extremely expensive. And the Russian gas, which is, uh, it's, which is at our front door, is boycotted. So, really. Well, may I ask, sorry. So this, th th there's a problem uh, with this um, feeding of um, uh, uh, power 
um, how this is uh, controlled. Um, um, as far as I know, I can't use the output of my photovoltaic system, but I have to uh, put it in the grid. You don't have to put it into the grid. You can have an autonomous solution, but uh, at the moment, uh, the uh, storage and the um, inverters are the problem. But that wouldn't make sense. The, the grid connection does make sense. Usually, um, there is uh, you put the modules on your roof, and then at the moment, um, you um, use the energy that you need for yourself in your own house, in your own home. That's consumed, and the surplus, and then you fill the battery, and then uh, only the surplus is fed into the grid. But in winter times, that doesn't work because the storage, the battery is very expensive. 10 kilowatts is eight to nine thousand euros, and uh, that gives you very good profit and. It's too complex anyway. And so it does make sense to connect the systems to the grid. It really does. And this storage, how long will that last? If I... Well, 10 kilowatt hours depends on what you consume. So with 10 kilowatt hours, uh, one kilowatt is 10, 10 hours. Um, but that's quite something. It'll usually last three to 10 days, but um, it's not, it doesn't help you forever. In a one family house now, if I have a battery like that, um, um, so um, I can uh, fill it and then if there's no uh, oh, simple, power, then I can use it for 10 days. It's a simple calculation. Usually um, a house needs 4,000 kilowatt hours per year, more in winter. But anyway, let's divide that by 360 days. So every day I need one and a half kilowatt hours of energy. And if, you, if I have 10 and the sun doesn't supply much because we're in winter time and uh, we have snow and so on, then uh, we, we don't, I can cover 10 days at the most. And so let's say three days to ten to a fortnight, depending on the energy you need. Um, and people are smart in this. And what's your um, expectation for the winter? Do you think will be uh, really cold? Or well, I looked at the figures, and I don't have them in my mind now. But in mind now, but I think the. Rented flats in Germany alone need 500 million kilowatt hours, billion kilowatt hours <coughs> that's of energy. That's massive. And the storage capacities, I don't, I don't know. But I do think that it's going to be tight, at least as far as heat is concerned. They will get power in. They have to avoid a blackout because that will be a uh, complete madness. Um, it all depends. Everything depends on electricity. Uh, you, you won't even uh, be able to refuel your car. Your car. The petrol stations will do be done. The pumps won't work. You can't pump it by hand. It's a complete. It'll be a complete stop. 
unimaginable. We depend so strongly on electric power. So whoever attacked these uh, pipes, be it the Americans or the Russians or whoever, uh, there was absolute madness to cut all of that off. And I don't, I don't know how that's going to work. And uh, everybody switching back to wood is not possible either. And a power blackout has to be avoided by all means. And of course, it would have made more sense, uh, as Herman Scher described in his books, and uh, as we do it. Uh, but people like us, or me, or others, uh, other companies working in this area, nobody listens to us, really. We're too small. The, um, Herman Scher was the big um, exception, I called him when there were changes on how to do it and so on. I gave him good examples and good uh, help. Uh, and um, in the beginning, the association asked much more, one euro, 50, 60, 70. And so um, we said, do it to a mark of 50 cents now. And um, so uh, that was fair prices all the time. And uh, before that merit of order came in said i said let's do 10 cent good for everyone we get good profit and now they say well due to the merit order and the high gas prices the people pay get uh, 20 30 percent now they could have avoided it but Rainer Bach said it's not possible for us to decide the price in parliament uh, well, it isn't. Mathematics is the same everywhere, whether the parliament calculates it or uh, somebody else. And the deputies can they the the uh, they can they can do that as well. They could calculate it, and pisses me off really. Now, what about the municipalities? Is there um, uh, the possibility of a municipality saying we'll take care of it for you? We're a municipality with a mountain lake that we can uh, pump the water up, we can store the energy that uh, the municipality looks after itself. That municipality is make sure that uh, everybody doesn't have to build all the infrastructure so that you better build something um, bigger, which would then be more economical for the individual. Are there such municipalities? Yes, of course, uh, there are many of those. I don't know how many in, in detail, but smaller municipalities uh, throughout Germany that are very active. Uh, didn't we discuss this thing in Saxony, uh, that there are deep pits there and high hills? Yes, yes, we did uh, talk about this. I found it very um, impressive. There's uh, the term uh, location energy. Um, I have someone uh, who keeps calling me. I uh, have to uh, pick it up and put it down again. Sorry about that. Anyway, location energy. Um, storage lake, for instance. Uh, um, there are uh, two connected lakes, for instance, one of them, um, the uh, uphill one is 220 meters above the other one. Sorry, just a moment. So if they uh, need power, they allow the water to uh, flow down to generate power. And once they have excess power, they pump it back up. And if you use uh, sand or stones, they have a different specific weight, at least uh, three times as much. 
for granite it's even more, etc., etc., and that could also be lifted up and down. And um, near the city of Cottbus, um, we built a, a, a PV system, and we saw it where uh, um, how um, big the uh, mountains are of um, debris taken out of the um, pits, out of the uh, lignite mines. And um, so there are these uh, pits, and you could uh, allow the soil to uh, run down and lift it up again. And I suggested it, and it was said, okay, uh, this is not uh, energy efficient. You can always down talk everything. They said uh, PV systems, they don't have the right energy density, etc. Now photovoltaics is uh, all of a sudden uh, the savior, uh, saving uh, technology. Maybe RWE would be the right contact person. Well, it was an event by the Economic Forum where we were speaking about alternative energies, uh, renewable energies, but I said it um, in private afterwards. And uh, it was then trivialized like that which kind of irked me. I think we have to use any option we have to store energy. There are so many possibilities, just like there are many possibilities of generating power. There's not only photovoltaics, there's wind, biomass, there's all sorts of uh, power sources. And now we have the gas-fired uh, power stations in order to replace the nuclear uh, power stations. That's why the price is so high. And if we don't get any gas anymore, I think they were afraid that uh, if people take to the street, so once it gets cold, um, so maybe the argument, maybe it's true or not, uh, it's just a hypothesis. Maybe they said, okay, things are broken now anyway, we don't get any uh, gas anymore, and then we can um, um, keep the population quiet. That's my gut feeling. I don't know if it's sure that it's possible, maybe not. I don't want to uh, suggest anything, but somebody did destroy those pipelines, whoever it was. Whether the Russians, they can't sell any gas anymore, then who benefits so? Well, we've just heard it in that short video as it was announced, and that seems to be, have been done. They've said so. Well, I don't want to... Um, you know, suggest anything, but uh, somebody did uh, do something. We have to uh, find a solution. So um, they have a, um, a valve that they can close. Well, I think it's it's great to look at this energy politics uh, and hear about it from someone who is involved in, it in everyday work and who has been working with this for decades. I think it's very nice to hear that these uh, things that we hear now that come from politics, clean energy and sustainability, all that stuff that's been told, at the same time, they do everything possible in order to foster these few big monopolistic, com monopolistic companies and not spoil their business. If you see who does the events in the parliaments, it's uh, sometimes it's the small ones that join all up, but usually it's the big ones, hardly ever the small ones. And 
always the big ones are always there and they even get someone like uh, mr clement to help them that they get politician people from the political revolving door in order to take their effect always and at yeah. all times that's the way um so there's very few who keep inviting yes. uh, small people. He wanted decentralization. That was his main topic. Independency, that we are not blackmailable by these big corporates. And they are the ones who are now uh, blackmailing us in food, in energy, in health uh, care. It's monopolization everywhere. The individual retailer is broken down. It's a massive fist that has put us into panic now. And it simply collects up everything and joins it up in itself and makes us dependent for the future. And it's horrible to see um, that won't lead to democracy. We have nothing That's to true. say and to decide in such a country. We are completely dependent. That's the end of the story. Yeah. These um, business parks, um, mayors, um, city councils, town councils are always uh, convinced. It's always the same uh, investors all the time across the globe. Uh, for instance, I just passed Frankfurt earlier today. I have a Tesla and I'm very happy with it. I never regretted buying it. And then I had to refuel there. And uh, the Teslas always have their charging stations uh, near McDonald's. So the Americans always stick together. There's McDonald's there, Burger King. And young people are, um, they're accustomed to that. They're, they're um, made accustomed to that. They don't go to a pub anymore or a, an inn. They always have the same food, Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola. Um, Blackwalk is um, invested in both of them, of course. And then the, the hamburgers, etc. I um, really monitored this. Um, um, where does Aldi uh, source its meat and where do they? And um, I, um, the, the incentive was uh, the context of the uh, deforestation of the tropical forests. And I found the biggest um, slaughterhouse uh, worldwide is called JBS, um, the headquartered in Brazil. And they butcher, and I um, asked people, what do you think they butcher on a, a daily basis? I am um, live in a um, town. And I say, uh, say a figure, but say a high figure. And nobody ever gave me a realistic figure. They butcher 80,000 to 100,000 head of cattle daily. And most consumers, the main consumers are in America, Europe, and Asia. And it's usually the chains. Uh, I never bought a single hamburger since. I don't buy anything there. I don't buy from Amazon. I don't need that. So what could we advise the people? Is there anything that they could uh, do in sense of joining up in some communities, but probably not uh, right off the cuff? Do you have any ideas on how saving energy or whatever? What could they do? 
Well, saving energy, uh, people do that anyway because it's become incredibly expensive. I think that has an impact. So uh, the price mechanism does have an impact, of course. And uh, for people to um, demand uh, PV, of course, um, is positive as well. We have to see that. But nevertheless, if I destroy uh, the entire economy first, that's my big worry. We have to get people to uh, source regionally, not from these big groups anymore. I'm from a small, a, a, a small uh, shop. Um, it's nearly a hundred years old. My uh, sister and um, brother-in-law run it uh, in the fourth generation. Just a corner shop. I'm really proud of it. They continue it now. And I learned uh, working there as a child. I helped out uh, even as a child. And people need to start uh, shopping locally in the neighborhood. But that's where it starts. Um, they uh, start um, business parks there. And, and we're happy if there's uh, a Lidl or an Aldi there, uh, any of these turbo chains. There's only four big retailers in Germany. They dominate everything. And nevertheless, the, uh, the, uh, they have only industrialized uh, foods. Nestle, Maggi, whatever, I don't know. It's crazy. And that's why we have to make sure that people... But there is a movement there uh, to buy more uh, organic food, regional f uh, food, but these... Um, trading consortiums, industry, uh, chambers of industry and commerce, etc. That's the same thing there. Well, in Greece, I noticed that in the villages, the small shops were gone, but now there's little outlets and they don't go to buy in wholesales, but they buy somewhere in the big change in the supermarket and uh, for a little more they sell it resell it on the uh, in their village so for their everyday needs people don't have to go to the supermarket so that means the supermarket takes over the wholesalers role yeah that is of course um, a poor business and a sad business really and we we need to get back to these smaller structures for people to shop uh, in their neighborhood because um, there's something starting again, but it's difficult. I, I agree with you, yeah. But there's extremely many things that are locally produced or have a surplus, for example, from your own garden, apples or whatever. If that's regionally organized, I know that in the basis, the grassroots party, there's people joining up together and building up a network of producers and products who's got honey that they can sell, who has got wood that they can sell uh, from their small uh, wood and so on. These things are now over the next, uh, good to get through the next winter. That's important. Cooperatives, uh, um, the cooperative uh, human uh, econ uh, economics um, does the same sort of thing. These cooperatives that have these self-supply uh, structures, uh, regional structures, I think that was a great thing. If I was in politics still, I'd support that. Yeah, we need more. We need more cooperatives, really. 
Yeah, well, that's true. I, I think it's a good initiative, but the question is whether this is not simply um, better on an informal basis uh, so that you don't uh, start any new structures, but that you uh, do it like a uh, larger neighborhood um, help uh, where you have barter trading or if you have an organization of Amazon of small producers, a local, um, if you have uh, something to give and help each other, I think that sort of thing is very helpful and practical, uh, particularly now in this uh, in the short term, because if you want to uh, found a cooperative uh, with any bureaucracy, you won't be uh, happy with that either. And we have a, a small farm in Mecklenburg as well, and that's really a network that helps each other. Um, so you can, for instance, uh, you know uh, someone who has a bale of hay, um, and for us a large number of uh, bales of hay for, for the sheep, etc., or other things that people have. But that's at a, a small level, but I think uh, for what we're facing in the winter, that is of fundamental importance that you um, cooperate with your neighbors. In the cities, it'll be a little bit more difficult, yeah. Um, but uh, there are, of course, um, supply structures where you can see uh, who can make things available and you could. Um, I think it's very important to talk about this topic, first of all because uh, it's something, this information has to be spread. People have to know about them. Yes, this uh, agriculture and solidarity uh, is something, for instance, are there any possibilities of getting involved there uh, where uh, people have, for instance, um, stored goods, it doesn't have to be the current yield, um, people might still have something from um, previous years. I think it's important to help each other and I think we will um, make presentations here on where this is available, where people can help themselves and each other. If a government um, will prohibit you keeping two chicken or more, uh, that's what they're starting with now. They are making the life difficult for people to supply for themselves with the hygiene rules. Are there bad things going on? Well, I have some thought on this. Sorry about that. Um, I um, researched, uh, well, in the past there were, um, was home butchering, uh, so in the winter you uh, butchered um, your own pig and that was banned by Brussels. So you have to go to the nearest slaughterhouse. Well, I have lots of stories for that. I was the reporter and all rules that work from Brussels was quite clear. It's only for the um, uh, for the big companies. Whatever act it was, um, the the slaughterhouses have to have lots of things, and only the big companies could fulfil these rules. Um, the what the Greens always are against, but they are the ones that benefit from this. That's the lobby that will prevail, and the small structures, the small companies. I think I need. I think some certain misbehavior is necessary there to be independent. Yeah, the small ones, we small ones have to stick together. Uh, I'd like to say one one thing. A company that I like very much and who's a role model for me. He said, "Well, 
um, they may be smarter, but we are more. We have to know that we are not only more, we are smarter as well. And we have to stick together. And this is what we have to talk about. And so I think um, if we do that, lots of things can change quickly if the majority is smarter. I see an opportunity in this, despite the splitting and the divisions due to the different assessments of the corona issues or the measures, one would have to say. I think if the people are in a difficult and existentially threatening situation in winter, possibly, I think that um, we will have people will have to talk to each other and that the um, divisions may close the gaps may close and people may say well the other person is not too bad they do want to help me and help everybody to survive and i think that uh, may lead to a movement um, in the right way yeah a new self-awareness against these people who uh, put bring all of this over us Yes, in, in solidarity, in the way I don't lock your way, I help you. Well, we uh, try to think that solidarities move away from the others. Um, that's absurd, yes. Okay, that was great. Thank you very much. Thank you for these insights. Yes, I enjoyed it, and I'd like to thank you that you um, remembered me and invited me. Um, I could... Uh, a bit uh, talk what I think. Yes, I think it's good that we really listen from everyday life, uh, practical life like you. I think it's good. It's very good. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And all, all the best and all the power. I admire you where you take the energy from. Well, we get the energy from you. Okay. Well, I'll ha I'll, you'll have my support. Okay. Switching to English, we have a new guest. Um, it's um, Alexandra Latipova. She's a former um, um, pharmaceutical industry executive. Hello. Um, oh, hi, Miriam. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hello. Ma hi. Nice, nice to see you. Yeah, it would be great if you could maybe introduce yourself a little bit. What's the most important things that you would like to share about your um, uh, CV with our audience? Yes, hi. Um, well, my experience is in pharmaceutical research and development. I spent about 25 years in the industry in various roles. Um, early on, it was data analysis. Uh, uh, and uh, later on, I started working in clinical trials and in technologies that are used in clinical trials for uh, various uh, drug assessments, uh, such as imaging technologies, electrophysiology, and, and many other techniques. Um, I co-founded uh, several clinical research organizations. These are companies that are contractors to pharmas um, uh, working in clinical trials. I, I worked um, eventually for approximately 60 uh, pharmaceutical companies all over the world and mostly in the US and Europe, but also in Asia. And uh, Pfizer was my client. Uh, and in fact, they were my investor twice in R and we had an R&D collaboration um, around these uh, technologies that can be used in clinical trials. And I also worked uh, directly with FDA in the areas of cardiovascular safety assessments. 
and participated in FDA industry consortia around methodologies to, to perform cardiovascular safety assessments in clinical and preclinical research. Um, I retired from the industry a few years back and I wasn't working when this whole um, COVID scam started. Um, and I became immediately concerned due to my knowledge that you know things were going very wrong, that the, the practices and, and policies that were being put in place just didn't make any sense. Um, and uh, you know I started looking into the situation more closely and I worked initially uh, by analyzing uh, VAERS, or CDC VAERS data set because it's publicly available. Um, and then later on, uh, more, more uh, now, I, I do, um, I work on various documents that become available through freedom of information lawsuits. Uh, and I uh, review these documents and I collaborate with various groups uh, trying to provide them, uh, you know, expertise and uh, uh, interpretation of what's in these documents so that various um, actions can be taken by public and also by uh, law firms. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, so you have a lot of experience in the um, in this field, obviously, and so you um, you uh, what your result from the, all this is that you think that all safeguards and regulations um, that that were used that that the public that the public relied on for years, um, and they also assumed that they would continue to be in place, are basically abandoned. Could you maybe um, yes, elaborate on that's that? Yes, um, That's the biggest lie about these so-called vaccines. They're not vaccines. They're not even pharmaceuticals. Um, and I will explain in my presentation. But that's the lie that was sold to everyone globally, that this is a medicine, but it's not a medicine. And all the once you know, public was told this is a medicine, a vaccine, every, everybody's expectation was that you know, all these safeguards that we're used to for medicines, they're in place and they were not, and they actually do not even uh, legally apply to these products. Uh, although that's a question, you know, you, you cannot contract for a crime. They, they have contracted for a crime and they're committing it as we speak, uh, but, uh, and they're calling it legal, but it's, it remains to be seen. Um, so, and I can explain in my presentation. So um, I have some slides I can, if I can share. Yes. Just share your screen. Okay. So. All right. Yeah. So um, the the topic of my presentation today is uh, to talk about these injections. Um, and uh, specifically about regulatory and manufacturing fraud, because not a lot of people have addressed uh, this particular issue, and this, this has been my focus. Um, through this investigation, I realized that um, there's a deep collusion between uh, manufacturers, uh, global regulatory agencies, it's not just FDA, it's EMA, it's all of them, uh, and especially with the U.S. Department of State. So this entire program is, is uh, headed by the U.S. Department of State. So this is a military action, military program uh, that has suspended all safety rules and regulations everywhere in the world, effectively. And uh, they're colluding with pharmaceutical manufacturers to drive these uh, deadly products throughout the world. 
so so far this is uh, you know overall very high level summary of um all evidence for these uh, COVID-19 injections that we have today. And I think you know, most of us here will agree on these points. Uh, the, and were covered in, in, uh, in your investigative committee also quite extensively. Uh, so first of all, these products are toxic by design. There's, there's been numerous publications explaining how that is. Um, and overall, uh, the mechanisms, numerous mechanisms of injury designed into these products they interfere with your genetic processes that are ongoing in your body all the time and uh while while the manufacturers are claiming that there's some sort of you know helpful protein that gets expressed uh that's not how the human body works it really just uh breaks down the immune system uh leading to all sorts of catastrophic consequences uh we now know that there is no safety of these products the the Death and injury toll is simply horrific all over the world. Uh, it exceeds all previous, um, you know, high numbers from all publicly available databases. Yet nobody is in the authorities uh, is paying attention to it. Or when that point is brought up to them, they just plain deny it and gaslight the public. Um, there is no efficacy of this product. I've yet to see anywhere that you know somebody could show a lasting protection from these injections they don't and now the the governments want people get injected every three to four months that's just ridiculous for something that's called a vaccine and there is absolutely no protection uh, against covid illness uh, that these products can provide now the focus of my presentation today will be mostly on manufacturing and how this fraud is committed from the uh, framework, you know, how is cartel formed, who are the participants of the cartel, and what exactly they are doing. Uh, so the bad manufacturing, a few people have addressed it, but this product is completely non-conforming because it doesn't have to conform. It's a, it's a, it's a prototype. It's not a pharmaceutical. Um, it, so it's, it's highly non-conforming to its label, um, and uh, it's extremely variable. Uh, and does not conform to good manufacturing practices, and there is no enforcement of good manufacturing practices anywhere in the world where such laws exist. Um, there is obviously malignant policy from the governments. We know that they're lying. We know that they're covering up. They're gaslighting um, the families of uh, killed and injured by these shots. Uh, they, uh, so they, they demonstrated very, very clear intent to harm through all these actions. Um, and at this point, everything should be deemed intentional. All the injury and death toll should be deemed completely intentional. Uh, now let's talk about manufacturing. So just to bring up the point, what is good manufacturing practices? Uh, in the US, it's a set of uh, laws and rules and regulations, which is uh, in the code of federal regulation. It's a very extensive set of uh, laws that covers high quality consistency, purity standards for drugs, vaccines also covers food and beverage mass produced. Um, the, the expectation uh, is that every batch of every uh, new product is about the same as the previous batch of the same product and that con they conform to the label, they don't have impurities and they don't have anything toxic. Um, there, there, there's also, in case of these COVID-19 injections, the expectation that um, they're even interchangeable between different brands, although no testing have been done uh, to demonstrate that. Uh, these, 
these rules and regulations, well, they exist in other countries and they're very similar. Uh, uh, they, in the US, they were developed uh, somewhere between 1900s and 1960s. It was a very extensive set of them. And it was in response to uh, you know, a lot of people being poisoned and killed by badly produced products at the time. Uh, and in fact, it's a, it's a severe crime to introduce uh, an adulterated product, a product that doesn't, that doesn't comply to these rules into interstate commerce in the US or internationally. So um, when I first started looking at these COVID-19 injections, I wanted to understand uh, you know, how they look like versus something that was more traditionally compliant with uh, good manufacturing practices. So because we were talking about you know, alleged vaccine, I decided to compare it with the uh, flu vaccines, traditional flu vaccines. And I took all the data from VAERS database uh, that um, uh, covered uh, traditional flu vaccines. And um, so I plotted it on this graph uh, and on the X axis, we have all the lot numbers for flu vaccines. This is about dozen manufacturers, different products, um, all injectable flu vaccines. Uh, and uh, on the y-axis, I have uh, serious adverse events and deaths. So I never include uh, all adverse events because there's a lot of administrative issues and maybe minor things. So I just want to focus on serious and deaths. So as far as serious and deaths, as you can see, um, these, uh, these are very consistent products. Uh, they um, never vary uh, much. Uh, the, the average is around maybe three or four uh, serious adverse events uh, per lot. And uh, then we have some outliers. Uh, we only had two outliers here over many years. And the largest was uh, 37 reports per lot. So this is approximately how um, you know, a product in compliance with good manufacturing practices would look like for a vaccine product. And that should be the expectation. When I looked at the, uh, you know, the, the COVID-19 injections, the picture was dramatically different. And this is extremely alarming. And it's so bad that it should have been a flag right away for any regulator on any level, federal, state, local. We all have uh, established um, uh, regulators at all levels of the government that uh, can flag issues with um, abnormalities, abnormal patterns with any product uh, in, their, in their jurisdiction. And then uh, a recall can be issued. So, but nobody did that. So we see um, this huge variation between lot to lot for all these COVID-19 injections. And here, by the way, I have all the verified lots from CDC. We have a complete list of uh, lots that were issued uh, in the United States with correct lot numbers, manufacture dates, and expiration dates. So all of these are valid. And yet you can see they are hundreds and thousands times larger in variation compared to flu vaccine, uh, which, which is all under this red line here. And all of these are so much higher. So we have the range of up to 1,500 uh, serious adverse events uh, and deaths per lot. And then we have some lots that have very few. And then we have a huge difference even between, you can visually see it between different manufacturers. You have Janssen here, Moderna, all these here, and then Pfizer, look at this. Uh, and so uh, this was in incredibly alarming. And in fact, um, there was one, uh, flag issued very early on in the rollout by Orange County, California. Uh, they detected on January 18th, 2021, so just a couple of weeks after the mass rollout of these injections, 
they detected one load from Moderna that they said generated a substantial number of adverse events. However, nobody else was alerted. So this was in the news, but no other um, health authorities were issued any, any communication. The manufacturer did not stop the slot, did not recall it. No, nobody uh, from the health authorities forced a recall. And the slot was continued to be sold all over the United States until it ran out in March. So uh, it also generated about a thousand of serious adverse events and close to 60 deaths. So the, all of those should be deemed intentional because the authorities did flag it. They did find uh, that it was generating abnormal adverse events, yet nobody did anything to stop it and they continued pushing it into people. So can I ask, like, in, in, in this Pfizer um, uh, representation there, I mean, this seems to be so, if if it if there's a toxic lot, then it's very toxic. Do you know, it, it doesn't uh, seem... Yes, the, so these, these ones, yes, they're extremely high and it, they're extremely toxic. They, these, they usually, these ones generate um, a lot of deaths as well. So I didn't itemize deaths here, but... Um, yeah, so we see these large, large loads generating a lot of deaths, but it's not always sometimes even a small one will generate abnormal number of deaths. So they also vary kind of by lethality, what you, you can say. So there's huge mm. variation all over the place. So you will for sure tell us something about the reason for those variation. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I, 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 we have some, okay. yeah, we found some, some many reasons. Yes, sorry, just. Okay. The sun rising here. Okay. Sorry. Okay, that's better. Um, so then people often tell told us, well, you guys are conspiracists, and um, that's all just because of the sizes of the lots are different. And actually, they're not that different. Uh, we later received uh, just recently, there was a FOIA uh, data uh, request information came out, uh, and they uh, provided all the shipments of Pfizer, um, a Pfizer product in the U.S. by lot number and with number of doses. So uh, when I plotted them by date of manufacture here on the x-axis, and this is we looking just at deaths here. It was it's easier to see. So uh, when adjusting for the load size, here I adjusted by 1,000 doses, we see this very strange picture. Um, there's a huge variability. So those, these are up to 12 times different from, from these. And uh, also look at the dispersion, especially at the beginning of the year. And then it, uh, it's uh, this variability declined and toxicity declined, but it's still unacceptable in this. The variability is still unacceptable in this part of the graph. It's just that it gets dwarfed by this part of the graph. So uh, all of this is just, it should not be there. The expected relationship uh, should be like flat line zero uh, and as close to zero as possible. Uh, but here we have a definite statistical relationship, uh, both between, for Pfizer, it's both between uh, the date of manufacture. So think about it. You should not have any difference in toxicity of a product, depending on the date it was manufactured. And also uh, the same relationship exists between uh, even the alphanumeric codes for Pfizer and Moderna. They also cluster, I'm not showing it here, but they also clustering around different alphanumeric codes. We, we know 
which letters and numbers stand for what level of toxicity today. And we can tell it to people. And in fact, we have been um, and uh, on, on uh, our website. Um, so that's that's the situation that absolutely is alarming and absolutely obvious, has been obvious from the start and no health authority ever noticed it. You know, so so that's extremely concerning. And again, that points to intentional act. And can I ask, I don't know if you're going to come to that, but uh, I, I have a question. So maybe uh, before I, I forget, like or this, like in the beginning, there was also like basically the, the elderly and the sick, um, already sick people, maybe who got vaccinated. And then we had like, you know, then the young, younger people. Uh, were admitted mm -hmm. basically so when we see that like until um april 21 um could it also be that this is this high variability because of um you know the or like more intense um reactions because of like the the group age group and so on that was that got vaccinated are you going to come to that question later or yeah i have a slide on this in my backup slides in fact um so yeah, that question was asked uh, frequently. And here is the answer. This is by the way, by my German colleague, and this is based on German data. Mm -hmm. uh, age doesn't influence this as much as you think. So we had 12 times difference with, between, uh, you know, the low, low lethality lots and high lethality lots. And yet, um, so there were some older people, but remember in the early rollout, there were also uh, uh, healthcare workers. So it was never okay. just old right. people. You're so right. the, the average age has always mm -hmm. been, uh, you know, fairly low. It's not, you know, it's not in the 80s. It's, uh, it's much less. But here's my, my, my colleague from Germany did analysis looking at the influence of age over, you know, these effects of, of deaths and se severe adverse events. And um, turns out age has only partial explanatory power, it does not explain all of it, it actually explains very little of it. So here we have something like 18, 13% explained by the age and the rest is not explained. And you can visually see it. So, so he did different tests um, on uh, the lots that were shipped to Germany and uh, you know the, with, with the severe adverse events and deaths. And he plotted them here. Um, and you can see, so for example, here it's very clearly uh, can be seen on this graph. So the age here is less than 60 even. So this is maybe 58 year old. And you can see this vertical mm -hmm. dispersion of the results of the adverse events. So this means that for the same age, they had the lots that were, you know, less toxic and far more toxic. This is a huge dispersion and it goes almost everywhere you can see that right and you can see here you know 60 uh or 70 even so there is this very not toxic and this is around 80 years and very highly toxic and you know it goes all over the place so so the data because the data is in this exists in this cloud it, it just tells you age doesn't explain it explains a little bit okay thanks so much so, let me go back And uh, there were also other patterns of uh, strange variability, also still unexplained. Uh, it's another uh, one of my colleagues uh, put together this, this chart for the US. Uh, we have very strange geographic abnormalities in terms of um, 
you know how toxic these uh, these products are. So when we look at data in VAERS, so that's all 100% vaccinated population. So policies of local governors do not play a role here. It's everyone who got vaccinated is covered by this. Um, we look at uh, deaths per 100,000 vaccinated people in the state. Then we see this, this picture, which is also quite strange. Uh, for example, the South Dakota is the worst state in the union right now. It has uh, 33 deaths per 100,000 vaccinated people. And the next worst is uh, Kentucky, which is 24 per 100,000 uh, vaccinated people. And then we have states like Utah and California, for example, with only 1.7 and 1.9. So that's a huge range. Again, uh, there is no way to explain this by normal you know, demographics of the states. In fact, California has you know, poor demographics if you think about uh, you know, homeless and uh, drug addicted populations and, um, and so forth. Um, so that's unexplainable. Um, right now, and uh, nobody seems to be concerned about this. Uh, but to me, just says that the product is gigantically, gigantically variable, and whatever they're shipping to these different states is uh, is extremely variable too. So, uh, given this variability of manufacturing, you know, the, so the manufacturing is producing highly, highly variable product, and it creates these strange patterns, abnormalities, whichever way you look. Um, so I started next looking at the regulatory documents that I could get. And uh, I reviewed uh, several packages of uh, what's called non-clinical summaries. Uh, they became available through FOIA, and these were for Pfizer and for Moderna. And those summaries contained um, their own summaries of animal studies that they performed and the, the FDA then uh, used for approval of uh, Pfizer's uh, injection product and uh, Moderna spike wax. So when I so I'm going to talk mostly about Moderna, but for the interest of time, but uh, the uh, they they're very very similar both of them, um, and uh, so the first first I looked at the Moderna. And I found a very strange thing about Moderna. Moderna has um, uh, apparently has two investigational uh, new drug numbers, which is strange to me because uh, by rules, by regulations, there's supposed to be only one investigational new drug number for each new molecular entity. And that, uh, that number opens your application with the FDA and the similar process in, in, uh, in European agency. So that number opens your application, and then you as a sponsor collect all the data for animal studies and then clinical studies and all the results and all the data sets that get appended to that number. It's like a case number. Uh, and then that becomes a dossier uh, that, that you use with the regulators to review and approve your product. And that's, that works like this everywhere in the world where we use these, uh, these uh, systems, International um, uh, Conference for Harmonization. And in Moderna's case, I saw two numbers. So I, I still don't know how this works, but that's my question that was never addressed. First of all, the, that other number was opened first and then Moderna's number second. The first number belongs to the NIH. They are the owners, um, National Institutes of Health. And specifically, uh, it's a division of microbiology and infectious diseases, uh, DMID. And that's headed, uh, well, it, it, organizationally, that group reports to Anthony Fauci. 
So they own this number. They opened this number for Moderna in uh, in February 2020. And then they also did, and maybe ongoing, uh, they're performing uh, a, a lot of animal studies for Moderna. So because they have these two numbers, that means that they are co-owners of this product and they have the rights for revenues and profits derived from this product. So this is uh, highly abnormal and a huge conflict of interest because this is well beyond a, a, a more standard IP relationship where let's say a private manufacturer can license a, a patent from NIH or a patent from academic institution and then they uh, pay them small royalties when that technology is used in, the, in subsequent products on the market. But this is different. This is NIH actually getting revenues and profits from this product, or at least has the rights to. And uh, the, the, also we should note that, of course, uh, NIH and Anthony Fauci specifically were in charge of all these uh, draconian mandates, coercion of people into injecting this product into everyone. So how is this that they are then you know, profiting from it directly? Uh, so I've raised this question many times. This has never been addressed by anyone, uh, but I think people need to speak about it more. Uh, next, I reviewed the packages for both Pfizer and Moderna with respect to what the standard testing would be in the um, preclinical or animal experiments. And just to give you an overview, this is very, very high level. Each of these boxes contains numerous studies. Um, so for normal uh, uh, drug or you know vaccine or any product biological, what you need to do is assess them uh, in animal experiments first before you can give it to humans in a highly controlled clinical trial setting. And this is in order to exclude major risks and make sure that the product is safe enough to, to then be given as experimental product to humans. And um, the categories of safety testing in preclinical will include three major uh, components, uh, pharmacology, safety pharmacology, and uh, pharmacokinetics. Uh, pharmacology includes a couple of areas. One is primary pharmacology. This is, you have to tr at least try to demonstrate uh, a mechanism of action that you declare for your product. For example, if the manufacturer is claiming, you know, this product will create a uh, spike protein, and then that will create an antigen. Well, that needs to be demonstrated in those studies. Uh, and then secondary is any off-target effect. So if while doing that, it's doing something else, you also have to show that or you know, exclude it, or at least have some idea what potential off-target effects may happen. Uh, and then uh, drug interaction is also an important part, especially if the product is supposed to be given to absolutely everyone then uh, a lot of people already taking multiple drugs and they, they can interact in unknown ways. So at least some idea needs to be given to what potential interactions and are there any counterindications for, for other products. Um, then the next category is to see how the product gets distributed through the body when you, when you inject it. And that's called pharmacokinetics. In pharmacokinetics, we assess uh, uh, many things, uh, but uh, important ones, uh, absorption, uh, distribution, metabolism, excretion studies, those are standard. Uh, and then very, very important ones are toxicology. Toxicology means that if, if your product is detected in a certain area, let's say it gets into cardiovascular tissue, or it gets into liver tissue, or it gets into the brain, in other organs, 
um, you need to then do the toxicology study for those particular organs and figure out you know what what is the what is the maximum exposure what's the exposure over time when does it clear what's the uh, maximum tolerated dose what's the um, the toxicity where where do toxicity start because we want to develop a, what's called a therapeutic window where the the drug is um you know it's high you can give it high enough so that it elicits desirable response but it's also low enough so that it doesn't cross the threshold of toxicity and and that's that's the most important part of all these experiments is to find that space and uh that space was never found for these products by the way um so uh also another area here of course is reproductive toxicology i'll talk about it some more so what happened uh with what moderna and both both pfizer they used very similar strategy here so they did not do this they did not do admi studies um, they did not do any secondary pharmacology. Uh, then they waived for themselves this whole area of safety pharmacology, and they and they told the regulators that it doesn't apply to them because of 2005 WHO guidance for vaccines, which is preposterous, uh, absolute claim because these products are not vaccines, and especially in, in 2005 they were not considered vaccines; they were gene therapies. Um, so that kind of you know ridiculous claim was accepted wholesale by the FDA. And so in Moderna case specifically, what I found is that about 50% of all the studies that they included into this non-clinical package uh, contained tests for completely irrelevant articles. So they just compiled a whole bunch of previously failed products that they had in the pipeline, appended them to this, and they said, oh, it applies to spike vax. It doesn't apply to spike vax. All the tests need to be performed with exact exact formulation that you're going to use in the ultimate clinical uh, clinical product, meaning your mRNA that's going to go into the spike vax and the lipid nanoparticle exactly as it's going to be in the spike vax. None of this was done at all. So this was a hodgepodge of different studies from different years. For example, biodistribution, um, they included a study from 2017 uh, for acetamegalovirus, and it was a concoction of six different mRNAs. None of them are the mRNA that's in SpikeVax. Then uh, toxicology studies were not done. There was only one uh, non-GLP, non-good laboratory practice compliant uh, toxicology study, and it wasn't completed even at the time that the package was written. And there was one, only one GLP study in reproductive toxicology. I'll talk about that. Uh, and genotoxicity, carcinogenicity was assessed only for one component, this, uh, pro this uh, chemical SM102, and only in in vitro like cell line experiments. So that's completely unacceptable. But the FDA, uh, by the way, did not find any problem with this, completely accepted it. So to me, and, and that was both for Pfizer and Moderna. So to me, that told there is a collusion between the regulator and these manufacturers. And in fact, I, I believe the regulator FDA drove this fraud. They told them how to submit the documents because this is in complete violation of any, if you look at the FDA guidances, it violates all of them. You know, so that, that is just so bad that, uh, you know, if, if, if a manufacturer tried to do that and FDA was following its own rules, none of this would fly. Yet somehow it just gets red carpet and they just waltz in with this with this garbage and that's that to me says that fda told them to do it this way 
Uh, now, Moderna also made uh, this really bizarre claim, which is now both of them making, and now it's being enshrined into regulatory practice as we speak. Uh, so this is a slide from Moderna, uh, from JP Morgan conference in uh, 2018. Uh, they were claiming that their product is a platform, which is, by the way, every startup in every industry claims that their product is a platform. So this means absolutely nothing. Uh, is, but they're claiming they're claiming they have a platform where they can make these lipid nanobubbles and they can put whatever mRNA they, they desire into this lipid nanobubble. And if it worked one, it will work again and again. I just, you know, I, I, I won't dignify this, but um, anyway, that, but this is a very dangerous claim. Um, so what they're saying, essentially, their product doesn't need to be tested. Only the delivery vehicle needs to be tested. It's like saying, well, the truck that's carrying food and the truck that's carrying explosives is completely the same thing. You know, don't pay attention. Um, and, uh, you know, because this, this claim by itself would have never passed through normal regulatory practices as they are designed and regulations as they are written, what they needed to do is to manufacture the crisis to push it through uh, emergency use authorization so that they could actually put this on the market. And they did. Um, so they did not test uh, their uh, spike vax, neither, you know, uh, Moderna didn't test spike vax and Pfizer didn't test their BNT162 uh, uh, product either. They only tested sort of delivery vehicle and did all kinds of uh, evasive tests not to actually test the, the directly this combination of things. And now they're both claiming we have a platform and now FDA is allowing them to do a study in eight mice and then in, immediately put the product on the market. So this has, of course, many problems. Uh, first of all, you know, who wants the product which was tested on eight mice? I don't know. But the second is uh, now FDA uh, Pfizer and Moderna are a cartel. Uh, they established a cartel where for Pfizer and Moderna, they can do eight mice study and that's it. For everybody else who even wants to work in mRNA, for example, any other startup that they're all thinking that, oh my God, this mRNA re revolution happened and we're all going to be rich. They should think again, because that now they have to comply with all regulations to approve their platforms. But Pfizer and Moderna can only do Ate my study. So we have they have ruined the entire industry, pharmaceutical research and development by doing this, and they have established government pharma cartel by by doing exactly these steps. So uh, next, I want to specifically address the reproductive toxicology study that Moderna did. Uh, it was a small study, about forty rats, um, uh, and. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to cover design. They had some, you know, half of them vaccinated, half of them not vaccinated. By the way, the male rats were never, never vaccinated. So we don't know what happens with the male reproduction at all. And nobody has addressed that. Um, and they only vaccinated females. Uh, and then eventually they found um, that there was a strong transfer of antibodies from them to fetus and from them to pup. And the levels were high. They're saying antibodies, like it's a good thing, but uh, if antibodies transferred, so did mRNA and spike proteins. And we now know that spike proteins were you know, found in, in breast milk, for example, uh, and mRNA uh, specifically was found in, in breast milk. So these, uh, these things, mRNA and spike proteins, 
they pass all sorts of barriers, such as placenta, uh, such as uh, brain and, and blood. And, and so they will end up in the baby. And it's not clear what it does. Well, it, it's dangerous. We know it's dangerous. And the baby is obviously a small uh, body and it's developing. And so uh, this, is, this poses high risk to the developing uh, baby. And none of this was studied in the, by, by anyone. Uh, also, mothers experienced toxicity uh, during gestation, and it coincided with the day when they were expressing the highest levels of antigens. So obviously, this is related to the vaccination. So they vaccinate them, they experience high toxicity. Uh, uh, the, they were claiming that these effects were transient and not so bad, but rats lost fur, and they couldn't use their hind leg. And But Moderna says, don't worry, they were thriving. Oh, I'm not sure how the animal is thriving when they're losing losing fur. Um, and so, but because I don't have the access to full reports, this is only Moderna's own summaries, their own words about their studies. So I cannot tell you exactly what happened there, but it looks to me like they're whitewashing a lot of a lot of stuff. And the most important thing was that they found uh, that uh, rat offspring had skeletal malformations. So um, here's their own language, um, mRNA-1273, that's Moderna spike vax, uh, related variations in skeletal examination included statistically significant increase in the number of rats with one or more wavy ribs and one or more rib nodules, which is extra ribs. So those are severe skeletal malformations and they were statistically significantly increased in the babies of the of the vaccinated mothers. So that's as clear safety signal as you get. And those are standard studies for assessment of, uh, of developmental toxicity. Um, yet, and, and then they also correlated that with um, maternal toxicity during, during the gestation on the same day. Uh, so obviously it's related to the, to the vaccine. Uh, and so obviously this product is causing damage to both mothers and their developing uh, babies. However, FDA then directly lied on the label and the regulatory documents on behalf of Moderna. What, what FDA put in their uh, summary for non-clinical pharmacology and toxicology, which is part of uh, labeling for spike vax, is that there were no vaccine-related fetal malformations or variations. So. And that was hidden secret for a year, more actually than a year, until it was uh, released through court order. So, and until I read it, and we would have never known, and they would continue pushing uh, this on pregnant women worldwide. And they're continuing, they knew about this, but they, they were knowingly forcing this on pregnant women. Remember the, the campaigns that were everywhere, CDC advertising, FDA advertising, like their you know, pharma sales reps, uh, just advertising this is totally safe in pregnancy and, and pushing everyone and even forcing uh, pregnant women if they were healthcare workers or you know, police or school teachers. So that's, to me, that's, that's a, it's a, it's a crime. It's a horrible crime, what they did. And we know now that there are huge adverse events uh, related to miscarriages, uh, to uh, problems with babies, babies dying, uh, lactating babies dying. Um, uh, and that's all recorded in VAERS. And again, they are denying it and gaslighting everyone. So next, uh, you know, I want to talk about 
uh, what's really happening with this product, why this variability exists, in my opinion, and what we found through various uh, now uh, direct testing of vials and examination of more closely of the manufacturing processes. So uh, as you know, uh, the, the, each product has its label. And even though Pfizer was trying to, to hide this particular information for a while, now it's available. Uh, we know that they are declaring certain ingredients such as this BNT162B2 is their mRNA sequence. And then the rest of it is, you know, lipids, lipid nano, but describes lipid nano bubble composition, these ALCs and so forth, cholesterol, and then some other, you know, other uh, products uh, that, you know, balance it into a, into an injectable product. Um, they're also declaring, you know, quite precise quantities of each on the per vial and per dose level. So because as remember, they, they get shipped in multi-dose uh, multi vials and then each dose gets prepared by a vaccine administrator at the site manually in completely uncontrolled manner and outside of any good manufacturing practice compliance. So, but nevertheless, each dose is supposed to contain 30 micrograms of mRNA, for example, and then some other components, okay? Also very precisely described. Uh, but what I found by, by reading uh, manufacturing documents uh, for Pfizer specifically that was submitted to EMA, uh, there were no, uh, no tests uh, were designed for testing of the ingredients, especially at the vial level and forget about the dose level. So uh, what they were testing, what they were describing as tests at vial level uh, were basically uh, the, the vial weight at filling and uh, some integrity parameters like how well it's capped and so forth. But there were no tests that said, we're gonna take random sampling of a few vials from each lot or from each line as it comes, uh, comes off, and then we're going to open them and we're going to see if it does contain 225 micrograms of RNA or not. None of that exists. Um, and the, all, all the ingredient uh, specification tests are designed at the batch level. And the batch is a bulk product, it's upstream manufacturing step. Per regulation, per government regulations, these tests need to exist at the dose level, at the unit dose level as it's dispensed to the patient. So, and they're not doing it. And I'll, I'll talk more about this. Uh, and so far, our finding is that, uh, and this is from random vial testing all over the world. So far, we found that not a single vial conforms to this label or any other label of the manufacturers. So what has been going on uh, is independent testing of vials by many teams. So this paper was recently published in the International Journal of uh, Vaccine and, and Therapeutic Practice, um, uh, Vaccine and Vaccine and Theory Practice and Research, sorry. And I know some of the authors and I, I am in correspondence with them. Uh, and uh, the these teams of researchers and independent researchers all over the world, 16 countries, I believe, uh, have gotten access to some of the vials, mostly, you know, Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Jensen, uh, but there's some other ones as well. Um, and what the summary of overall findings is that they're, all these products are completely different. They differ from the labels, but there are some consistent findings. For example, uh, when RNA is, you know, when they're able to isolate and sequence RNA from the vials, 
RNA sequence does not conform to the label. We, we have yet to find a match to what uh, Pfizer says it should be. Uh, then there are huge DNA impurities and protein impurities, gigantic amounts, I'll, I'll show you that. Uh, there are also consistently uh, other impurities found in large quantities, and they constitute heavy and rare metals. Uh, there is no, uh, no uh, it's a known origin or purpose of these materials inside the vials. Uh, metals include things like uh, cobalt and chromium and um, uh, aluminum, uh, which are very toxic to the body and neurotoxic. Um, you know, rare things like thulium, which is bizarre. Uh, and antimony even in, uh, was found in Moderna vials. And antimony is a metal used in semiconductor manufacturing, mined in China. It's not clear what it's doing in Moderna's vials, which is supposed to be produced in Massachusetts. Um, there are also uh, inclusions found, uh, contaminations with structures of also unknown origin. They look like unexplainable blobs and particles, and they're large because people find them under standard optical microscope, uh, which means that they're not nanoscale, they're larger than that. And uh, crystals, they're very characteristic flat, uh, very square and rectangular shapes with sharp edges. They're also very characteristic fibers and ribbons uh, and like flat, flat ribbons. Uh, there is uh, assembly, self-assembly process, uh, chemical probably uh, movement uh, vis visible immediately from the frozen state. And this was videoed in single take videos. Uh, so there's very good documentation of it. Researchers take uh, precautions and steps to exclude environmental dirt on the slides. They do controlled experiments. So there are some high quality studies, not, not all studies are high quality, but some high quality studies found all these things. So that's what I'm, I'm summarizing. Um, there's uh, possibly different forms of graphene in these um, vials and also things like, for example, leftover magnetic beads. You remember the, all those people who, were, who had like fridge magnets stuck to their arms post-injection? Well, that's what it is. Uh, magnetic beads are used in purification of RNA in manufacturing. They were left in the vials, not removed, and then subsequently injected into people. Uh, here's example of the RNA sequencing from a Pfizer vial. Uh, here, researcher is showing uh, the first green line is the declared Pfizer sequence. And all of this, by the way, is by weight, and that, that's how Pfizer does it too, uh, or, or rather by, by length of the, uh, of the molecule. Um, so the first sequence is this BNT sequence, that's Pfizer declared sequence, and it's supposed to be like this, this green line. And then the first, next three, you can see those are possible matches, uh, but none of them actually match. You know, there are some pieces of it and then some extra stuff at the end, but the beginning is missing. And that's what, what's floating in that vial. And then uh, what's very concerning is these additional uh, small RNA fragments. And they were even described by the regulators in uh, European Medicines Agency documents as process-related impurities. And they were concerned about it. And they should be concerned about it because, well, I call them shrapnel RNA. There are many, many names for them, micro RNA, small interfering RNA, all kinds of things. But you can think of it as shrap shrapnel. When the glass breaks, it breaks into large pieces and small pieces, and they're, and they're all unpredictable. Uh, 
it's it's like this. Um, and then they're not benign. Um, FDA dismissed them as a theoretical concern. It's not a theoretical concern. Micrornas have been designated specifically as as a class of a biological weapon that can be used because they are interfering with the normal genetic processes. They do not have to code for proteins. They do not have to have a, a length to code for anything, but they can still interfere with the cellular processes uh, dramatically, and they can still aggravate the immune system and break it down to such a degree that then over time, you will have uh, various types of malfunctions, including cancers specifically, and neurodegenerative diseases and all sorts of abnormalities. So that so this this is in the vial. So you can see it's almost half and half uh, how much of this uh, component it has larger pieces of RNA that don't match, and then all these shrapnel RNAs. Then um, the researchers looked at several Pfizer and Moderna vials, and they found large quantities of DNA. Uh, DNA is, is also a process-related impurity. It comes from the beginning of the process where RNA is transcribed from a DNA matrix. Um, that, uh, it's, a, it's a raw material or input into the process. And so this DNA matrix is not all, it's always like not 100% uh, transcribed. You have a remaining impurity from this process and it needs to be removed. And here it was it clearly wasn't removed because uh, so in the three BioNTech vials and one Moderna vial, they found uh, DNA on the, so in this test, and again, Pfizer uses similar, similar tests. Uh, you can um, see this is a calibration band on the left of different sizes of DNA that are possible. And then these, these are matched with what's in the vial. So you can see that there are these uh, stripes uh, for different sizes that were found in the vial here. It's kind of smeared in different, uh, amongst different sizes. So they found DNA and they found it in various, uh, various sizes in these vials. And then they calculated the weight of it. Uh, and, and it turns out that uh, there's a huge amount of it in each vial. So Pfizer themselves declared that acceptance criteria for, for the vials uh, is such that the uh, DNA can be present there only up to uh, about 10 nanograms per dose. Uh, but what's calculated here from the actual analysis is you know, up to 2,000 that amount. So you know, that, that's, that's really, you know, really, really concerning. Also, I found I found uh, these um, batches specifically in VAERS, although they come from Europe, so VAERS is not, you know, not complete for Europe, but I found them in VAERS and I found reports for serious adverse events and deaths for them in VAERS. And another, uh, another image was provided by my colleague, uh, um, Shimon Yanovitz from Israel. Uh, they did some testing and this is under standard microscope uh, and that they found they were looking at the vials from completely frozen state and then waiting for them to unfreeze and sort of photographing that that process. And what they found is on the on the top line here, we see uh, immediately from frozen state. This is imaged under standard microscope, and you can see how uh, many different types of inclusions and, and blobs and some sort of particles there and they're not nanoparticles because under standard microscope we're seeing much larger structures so it's not clear what they are and then after some uh 20 30 minutes after unfreezing they photographed again and look they changed to all this 
these compositions. So that's what's evolving and growing in self-assembling. So they kind of agglomerate and there's something going on, some kind of chemistry um, that, that's constantly moving and then co collecting and coalescing in these other structures and even new ones appearing like these fibers that were not in these images. But, um, you know, it's very strange and it's unexplained and it should not be in the in this type of a product. Uh, so it's a question, why, why do we have this? And it's these structures, they're not rare. So another colleague provided uh, this image for me and they said that this is just from one drop of Pfizer product. And after it sat for 72 hours, uh, they examined it at, at 100x magnification. And you can see how much of this stuff, it's basically just filled. And this is just one drop, it's filled with this. With these, with these structures, with strange structures, some are like particles and some are like more larger square pieces and it's not clear what this what's going on but there's there's a lot of it that's kind of teeming with it could, could this be a question could this be cholesterol crystals the, sorry could this be cholesterol crystals from cholesterol I, uh, some of them might be but uh there are the ones that are like you know square rectangular they don't look like crystals we're also looking at crystal at the you know normal images cholesterol crystals um they don't match that like mm. they, they don't look like that so they look like something else and there are even more weird structures like much larger and weird structures they look like carts on wheels and you know uh, it's hard to describe but so they also have like circular things attached to square things attached to some fibers um you know, so uh, you know, we we are looking, yeah, we're we're comparing to like salt crystals and cholesterol crystals, and you no, know, some of it maybe, but most of it not. Um, so this this is still remains to be explained by the manufacturers who are keeping extremely silent about it. Mm. Um, and what we also found, um, and this is almost good news uh, for the victims, we found that when this product is broken, it's safer. Um, so the, the, the slide on the left actually came from, from Germany. It's a, a recent report was published by one of these research teams. It's called the German Working Group. And uh, they did a, a number of very good, uh, solid and, and uh, high quality tests uh, for these products. And one of these tests was looking at the pegylation quality of the product. Um, so they had different Pfizer batches. So each dot here is a batch. And uh, they looked at uh, the degree of polymerization, uh, how homogeneous was the polymerization of these nano bubbles. So the, the peg is there to protect the bubble and to keep them separated. And uh, if, if, if you have small molecules and they're all homogeneous, it's like a mosaic, it protects it really well. And when you have smaller and larger ones, uh, that can lead to breakage of these nano bubbles. And if, if, if it breaks, then the mRNA will escape, get uh, interacting with water and will also degrade. Uh, so what they found is that this is, this is associated, so degree of inhomogeneity, so how often this bubble can break is associated with fewer adverse events. So it's, it's safer for the victim. And then I found previously in my analysis of Pfizer documents, I found that then, you know, once mRNA escapes and breaks, if you have more broken mRNA in your uh, batch, and these are also batches from Pfizer, different than, than, than these, 
Um, so when it, when you have more broken mRNA, uh, it's also less uh, um, less deadly. So it's safer, and and that that's just good news because obviously they cannot make this product stable. They cannot make it uh, to their to their own specification. And that turns out to be, uh, uh, you know, saving grace because it doesn't kill as many people as they were intending to. Do you have um, information about uh, the dependence on temperature, on storage temperature? Because I can imagine if you store it in a, in a not uh, frozen or in, for a longer time in a, in a higher temperature, that there's more degradation and that the, the toxicity will, will diminish then. Is it possible? Well, yes, absolutely. So storage, transportation, it breaks it breaks in all steps and even shaking. So like they're saying for, to the administrator, the instruction is do not shake the vial. You have to invert it a couple of times. OK, yeah. so but if you shake it, of course, you, you're going to get more broken pieces, you, which so are, have... they're not benign, but they're a bit safer. OK, so if you have um, if you want to just to to show the people that it's not so dangerous that you don't want the people to 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 be alerted by toxicity effects mm -hmm. you just uh, care for a, a little bit higher temperature it's easier yeah that's a way you to degrade it you use the side effect yeah in pfizer documents they they use that method to degrade rna as well for testing purposes so mm -hmm. it's very well documented um the organizational um, uh, question so we have another guest with us she's she's here she was supposed to be, to be on at at, um, at five and unfortunately she has to leave at six so if I mean this is like really very 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 interesting and I'm sure there's lots of questions um, uh, I was just wondering how we're gonna um, uh, you know so we make time also for the next guest is it possible that you could stay with us and we can ask you uh, uh, some questions later how long is your presentation still um uh, I, so yes definitely i can stay on and um uh well i have a couple more slides um actually this is a good point to stop and then i can i, I can bring them back later if that could work for you i would very much appreciate to hear to see all your slides and to hear all of your story yeah okay yeah i can continue i'll stay on and i'll, that would I'll be continue fantastic because so we can you know like uh, it's 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 really amazing what you found out i think it's very very important also you presented in such an you know easy to follow way also for people who are not so deep into this oh. dna and all these kinds of things i think everything is really laid out in a fantastic way it's very important but um so because of the time limitation of the next guest I if you don't mind I mean it's a completely different topic but anyway we can maybe cut it later together so we can have the you know your presentation all in one piece so um, mm -hmm. excuse me for that um, thanks so much um, um, so uh, we have with us um, Dina Pollard Sachs um, she's an attorney at law from America and she's gonna um, can you hear us Yes, I can. Okay. How are you? Fantastic. Um, yeah, sorry if uh, you know we just had to. I don't know if you followed the the previous presentation. It's I think it's mind blowing. It's very important. Um, but we also wanted to make room for you because you also have a very important topic and a very exciting one. I have. Um, I mean, not exciting in a good way, but like I mean, sort of emotionally uh, also. Uh, yeah, I mean, whatever, irritating topic. Yeah, maybe could you just okay. um, ex uh, introduce yourself uh, with a few words so people will know your Yeah, my name is 
Dina Pollard-Sachs. I'm from Gig Harbor, Washington. I'm here for my 40th high school reunion today, which is actually tomorrow. So here I am sitting in Gig Harbor as I speak to you. Uh, I went to University of Washington after that, then USC on a scholarship to law school. Then I went to Berkeley for a second law degree and became a law professor. In that capacity, I specialized in the Liberty Clause, teaching constitutional law as well as tort law. Um, sexual misconduct is one of my areas of expertise and how the brain processes information, cognitive learning theory and things like that. So all these things have come together, of course, the First Amendment as well, which is partly why I studied the cognitive learning theory on how the brain intakes information, assimilates information and forms ideas about people and concepts. Uh, and so in First Amendment law, we need to understand how speech affects the brain to understand whether or not it's fairly being considered or it's sneaking up on us without us knowing and affecting us without us knowing because the latter is not protected by the Constitution. Uh, so in this capacity, I end up you know, writing books, uh, I'm sorry, writing many articles about constitutional law and tort law and got to the topic of sexual misconduct, which is sort of a growing field because Americans are um, dealing with a very high level of sexual disease. Our country is off the charts for sexual disease, like eight times higher than Europe, in the European country, um, you know, 12 times higher than Canada or something like that. I, the statistics are all in my articles, but it's mind blowing. So in that capacity, I started writing a book called Sex Torts about the law of liability for sexual misconduct, not criminal liability, but tort liability, paying damages to people. And I ran across a case called Codero versus Epstein out of um, New York. And I thought, well, what is this? Because this man, I'm sorry, this woman well it was a man who became a woman uh, a model and uh she was transgender and she claimed she sued victoria's secret and i knew from my stage you can't sue victoria's secret you can't sue a store right so uh she sued someone named jeffrey epstein les wexner and victoria's secret so that draw me drew me into the whole Ep jeffrey epstein you know debacle and at that time in may of 2018 no one had heard of him and i asked probably 25 lawyers and law professors no one had heard of this man so I started getting into it more and more and seeing how odd everything was. The same lawyers kept popping up, Ken Starr, Alan Dershowitz, uh, Goldberg, the same, you know, David Boyce. And I thought, what is going on here? There's like a few men at the top, these lawyers who are protecting these sexual predators. We had prosecutors involved who were protecting the sexual predators, like Cy Vance in New York, um, governors who are protecting the predators, Andrew Cuomo in New York. And so I ended up writing a whole separate book uh, for the public, and that became two books. Um, so it's the Godfathers of Sex, the book, Godfathers of Sex Abuse, Book One and Book Two. And these, um, the first one is Jeffrey Epstein, just just Jeffrey Epstein. The second one is Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, and the Me Too movement. But what I found so interesting about Jeffrey Epstein was the way he was involved with market manipulation and his ties to Israel, and certain things he was able to do that no one else was able to do. Um, for example, the day before the 2016 election, he was in one of his private jets and he flew over um, Saudi Arabia and the signal just went out. Because this doesn't happen. Every plane has a signal and that signal cannot just go out. It, it, every single plane is tracked, but his did. So this man has some ability to do things that other people can't do. Very high tech. Um, things our own you know, CIA aren't supposed to be able to do. So. This led me to really wondering what is this man and what role did he play? So I'm going to start a little bit about how he got into so much power because he was born um, the son of an electrician. He did not have money. In fact, that's the same story with Harvey Weinstein and, and Bill Cosby. They all came from very modest means. They all became extremely wealthy and they all became extraordinary sexual predators. 
Um, and I'm seeing sort of similarities here. So Jeffrey Epstein had a high school degree and somehow got a job at the Dalton School in Manhattan. The Dalton School is extraordinarily exclusive. The teachers there normally have PhDs um, or Ivy League degrees or a mix of all of the above. He had a high school degree. So how did he get a job at Dalton to begin with? That's weird. From there, he was fired for coming to classes wearing, you know, low cut shirts open with gold chains, you know, leering at the girls who were 14, 15 year old girls getting complaints. And he was fired from the Dalton School. But before that, he met someone named Alan Greenberg. Alan Greenberg was the chairman of Bear Stearns on Wall Street. And Alan Greenberg hired Jeffrey Epstein for Bear Stearns. Well, he got fired from Bear Stearns as well for chicanery is what they said. But by then he'd already met Les Wexner and he'd met some other billionaires. So Les Wexner was the one who really, I think, empowered Jeffrey Epstein in terms of the multi-million dollar money that came through his hands. He actually stole about something like $50 million from Les Wexner and Les Wexner's family didn't even notice. That's how much money they have. They eventually did notice by then Jeffrey Epstein had turned that money into a Ponzi scheme and made so many millions of dollars that he was able to pay them back. So he did pay the Wexners back. Um, but the, what's so interesting about this man to me is that every step of the way, somebody gave him a leg up that he shouldn't have had. And you have to ask why. This guy looks sleazy. I mean, he's creepy. Um, but what it, I think what it comes down to is he was providing sex to people, um, young girls, young boys, uh, and himself. Um, Elon Maxwell, for example, was someone he latched onto to write up in the New York social scene. Of course, Elon Maxwell's uh, father uh, owned, the, I think, the Daily Mirror, one of the big media companies um, in Europe, and actually stole something like 400 million pounds from that media company, at, stole the pension fund. And so the people who'd worked there for 10, 20, 30 years did not ever get their full pension. And uh, Mr. Maxwell was found floating uh, in the Canary Islands, not far from his yacht. So he might have fallen in, but I think it's more likely that someone finally got him for what he did to others. So you're dealing with really, really bad people, sociopathic people, and yet they managed to become friends with presidents like Bill Clinton, um, Hillary Clinton, um, people with enormous power. I personally do not believe Jeffrey Epstein's dead. I think he's alive. Um, I think that he definitely wouldn't commit suicide because he was into transhumanism with Bill Gates. And Bill Gates, by the way, always you know, denied the relationship, denied he was on Jeffrey Epstein's plane. And then the flight record showed he was on Jeffrey Epstein's plane. Um, and at that point, he wouldn't even answer questions. But his PR rep said, oh, well, he didn't know he was on Jeffrey Epstein's plane. He just got on a plane. He didn't know whose it was. I mean, the lies these people tell are so blatant and so obvious. And yet our people, Americans, have been programmed to the point that, you know, whatever they hear over and over again in our media, they just, it just tends to take hold. That's exactly what cognitive learning theory would say. When you hear something over and over again, you tend to believe it. So Jeffrey Epstein was a con artist and fraud every step of the way. He was able to get people compromised sexually, so they had to keep their mouths shut. He also put in cameras in his house, his enormous house in Palm Beach, Florida. I went to the house. I didn't get in. I just drove by it to see it. You know, very beautiful, very, very expensive house. He then bought an island uh, in the Caribbean, um, which is known as um, pedophile pedophile island or pedo island there's a lot of different names for it orgy island and he would um fly these little girls i mean young girls 14 15 um in from all over the world and bring in people like bill clinton 
um, movie stars, all sorts of people. And he had cameras everywhere on the island. He was recording everything. And so he and Gillen Maxwell would say they had an insurance policy. No one could ever do anything to them because they had videotapes and they had photographs and they were visible. People could, you could see who they were. And so even in his bathrooms, in his Palm Beach, Florida house, he had, you know, videotaping in the bathroom. So you, know, you couldn't, people didn't know they were going to the bathroom, they were being videotaped. So he did all this and always said, no one can ever do anything to me because I have dirt on everybody. And these were very powerful people. Um, the former prime minister of Israel, for example, is one of them. Um, his name's Ud Barak, um, various, I mean, world leaders. So the first question I had when I started seeing this was, how did these people with so much power just accept this man into their lives? This, this person who comes from nothing with a high school degree who was fired from Bear Stearns, fired from Dalton, terrible track record, never finished anything. He actually got into a good college, but he didn't finish that either. And then he gave so much money to Harvard that Harvard gave him a visiting scholar position at Harvard, which normally would require at least a PhD or a JD, some kind of you know doctorate degree. So there's this pattern with Jeffrey Epstein and the people around him where no matter what they do, they it's like Teflon, nothing sticks to them. He was also caught in an enormous Ponzi scheme and his partner went to prison for 18 years. And his partner told the prosecutor, well, it was Jeffrey Epstein and me who put this together. But for some reason, Jeffrey Epstein was just untouchable. So a lot of people believe Jeffrey Epstein worked for the Mossad and was a Mossad agent as well as an agent for the United States and possibly also England and the Crown. Remember, he was friends with Prince Andrew and Prince Andrew was caught when um, Virginia Roberts Gouffray came forward and finally talked about how she was in Mar-a-Lago, which was Trump's property. You see the ties, all the people being tied together. She worked at Mar-a-Lago. She was only barely 16. She had turned 16 like three or four days before that. And Gillian Maxwell snuck on the property. You cannot go to Mar-a-Lago without having a membership. You're not allowed on the property. You can't go to the restaurants, nothing unless you have a membership. Well, for some reason, Donald Trump allowed Jeffrey Epstein on without a membership. And Gillian Maxwell literally snuck on the property because she heard there was a really pretty towel girl. And she found Virginia Roberts and took her back to Jeffrey Epstein. And Virginia became the favorite sex slave for Jeffrey Epstein and was with him for numerous years. Um, these people are just so bizarre. Jeffrey Epstein was going to start a new human race, a uh, superior human race in his mind, using his own sperm. So he bought a huge ranch he named Zorro out in New Mexico, and he was going to impregnate 20 or 30 girls at the same time and have a whole bunch of kids at the same time, kind of like what a king would do. And he would tell people that he was like royalty, like he was like a king, you know, and he can do these things. Um, so, and, and if you look at the ties, the people he was involved with, there are a lot of the same people who are involved right now with the vaccine scam and the world banking issues and the manipulation of the markets. So Jeffrey Epstein is a prime example of what is going on right now. How all the same components are in play, you know, getting in with big people, knowing the richest people, somehow connecting or bonding on some sociopathic level, having dirt on them sexually, getting them compromised and, you know, everyone hiding everything from the public and owning media companies. Um, 
I think at one point Jeffrey Epstein was um, trying to get a, you know, some things, properties and whatnot, and others were also trying to get. And he didn't actually get the get the contracts, but these people always seek to own media companies so they can control the dialogue, control what the public is hearing, because we know from cognitive learning theory, cognitive learning theory, that when you hear something multiple times, you're it's going to take hold in your brain. You're going to believe it and you're going to act on it. Um, that's why stereotypes are so dangerous because people hear them so many times and then they're sitting on a jury one day and they don't realize they're applying stereotypes in convicting or whatever with the uh, criminal defendant. So, you know, I asked a very high profile person from one of the most well-known families in the country, you know, why you would hang out with Jeffrey Epstein. And he said, well, he didn't hang out with him, but he would be at parties, you know, in New York and there was Jeffrey Epstein hanging out as well. And he told me that Jeffrey Epstein walked right up to him and said, the first time he met him, I work for Wall Street, but I don't make a trade unless I have inside information. And I said to this man who's a lawyer, you know, and has a lot of pride in his reputation, why would you put up with that? Why, why wasn't he immediately escorted out of this party after bragging about being a criminal, you know, um, securities, you know, violator? And he didn't have an answer. So what I'm getting from the people I know, and I know some people who are from very prominent families, people who are very rich. And um, of course, Bill Gates is from this area. Um, he's from Seattle, and this is Gig Harbor, about 40 miles south of Seattle, is that they just don't ask a lot of questions. There's something about the uber rich, you know, social circles where they just, they just, it's something to do, they just look the other way in a way that we don't. You know, we're we're from a small town called Gig Harbor. We don't put up with anything. We ask, we don't care who it is. We ask questions. So something is going on with the rich or uber rich culture where they just don't question things. I think it. I think if they did, they get ostracized. I think it's just a sort of a a mindset and a cultural value they have. And this is one of the problems we're dealing with: is people aren't asking the right questions. They're not. They're not holding people's feet to the fire. And so then we have this group that comes about that's supposed to be helping us. You know, I call them the anti-vaxxers because that term doesn't bother me. I'm proud to say I'm an anti-vaxxer. You can call me whatever you want. I am completely against the COVID shots. I, I'm at the point now where had I known then what I know now, I never would have vaccinated my son against anything, knowing now what I know. Um, but the thing that has been so striking to me is I've watched for a year and a half the lawyers on our side fail in the courts, right and left, and fail for reasons they shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't fail at all. Uh, they do not know the law. They are not qualified. They're getting millions and millions in donations. Um, some of the people like Dr. Simone Gold promised the donors, I will hold their feet to the fire. I mean, I heard her speech she gave in San Francisco. We're going to hire a legal, legal team. She said all these things about how we're going to get the right lawyers together and really go after them. And then she hired lawyers who had no background in constitutional law, not really. They weren't scholars in the Liberty Clause jurisprudence like I am. They they weren't, I mean, you can see by their resumes and their curriculum vitae, they're not the people you have to have in this fight because the other side is the Department of Justice. The other side are the state attorney generals. These people generally come from top law schools and are top of their class. They know what they're doing. Um, and constitutional law is just filled with landmines. Um, it's been set up that way so that plaintiffs really struggle to get to a jury trial. You almost never get to a jury trial in a civil rights case because of all the pitfalls along the way and because most lawyers just can't handle the 
incredibly difficult, complex procedural problems that arise in these cases. So some of us got together who know what we're talking about and said, we've got to do something. So we've been working almost for free for you know two years now, and we're finally getting some support. I um, was able to write a brief for the Third Circuit Court of Appeal explaining in detail why every lower court has gotten the wrong constitutional test. They have applied a very deferential test called rational basis review to the vaccine mandates in this country. And that review standard, I mean, the government always wins. The standard that should have been applied is called strict scrutiny. And that is, in my opinion, absolutely positively the correct standard um, because the right to reject medication goes all the way back to the 1200s in this country. I mean, we can go back to English common law, ancient law, all the way through American common law um, and early constitutional law. Um, we've always had the right to reject medication. It comes from the natural right not to be touched, that you own your own body. So this was just filed about a week ago. <laughs> this is just happening. Um, the Third Circuit notified us the day before yesterday that they are going to accept my amicus brief. It's called an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief. And it's amicus briefs are filed by experts who tell the court, this is what you should do and this is why. And we're helping the court. We're a friend of the court to tell the court what you need to do here and what the law is to apply and why you should go this way with the law. And so I'm asking the Third Circuit to make a ruling that all the lower courts were incorrect. They applied the wrong standard because they didn't trace the history of the right. And let me just here for just one second, let me explain why abortion is so different than the right to reject medication. The court has said for decades now, and in particular, a case called Washington versus Glucksburg in 1997, the court said, if you want to declare a right fundamental, because you have to declare a right fundamental to get strict scrutiny. So declaring a right fundamental is absolutely critical at the get-go of the civil rights case. Because if you don't declare a right fundamental, you don't get that stringent strict scrutiny test. And they call it strict in theory, fatal in fact, because the government almost always loses when strict scrutiny is applied to the government action, which in this case is COVID shot mandates. So in Glucksburg, they were considering an, an older case from the 90s as well called Cruzan. In this case, the lady was brain dead and her parents wanted to stop the treatment because they were just keeping her alive like a vegetable. And the court was considering a law in the state, Missouri, that said you have to prove what the, what the person, the unconscious person would have wanted by clear and convincing evidence. The parents said, no, you should only have to prove it by a lower standard called a preponderance. Well, anyway, the Supreme Court said they agree with Missouri. It's okay to require that higher standard because if you're wrong, the person's dead forever. So it's okay, but they did not address directly whether it was a fundamental right to die, to be, to allow someone to die. And it's, it's complicated because it's not a typical substantive due process case. And substantive due process just means liberty clause analysis as opposed to procedural due process. So now we're gonna jump up to 1997. And here in Washington state where I'm sitting right now, a law came before the court um, that uh, you know did not allow people to commit, did not allow doctors to help someone die. It was a euthanasia, argument. The, the plaintiff said, I have a right to die because Cruzan, this, they call it the right to die case with the woman who was unconscious and you know, a vegetable. But the court didn't say that. The court didn't say there's a fundamental right to die. But what the court in Glucksburg said in 1997 was even if there was a fundamental right to die, there is no fundamental right for a doctor to kill you. It's different. One is rejecting medication. That I feel quite strongly is a fundamental right to say, don't touch me. But to seek medication to die, to seek euthanasia, or to seek an abortion 
is in a different level because you're asking for the government to say you have a right to a certain medical procedure that is not grounded in history and tradition. In fact, euthanasia and abortion have been illegal throughout this country's history and English common law. So I'm not concerned about Dobbs versus Jackson, which just reversed Roe versus Wade a few months ago. It's a whole different, it's a different, it's a different right being considered. And in fact, I think Dobbs helps us because we're saying, you know, using the court's um, test from Dobbs and from Glucksburg, we can trace the law back to the 1200s and we can say we've always had this right. Therefore, it's a fundamental right. So I expect to win this. And um, if we lose, Dana, uh, Dana is the uh, is the plaintiff for the nurses who were fired for refusing the booster after getting sick after two shots. Um, Dana Weaver is in New Jersey. The clients are in New Jersey. I'm the amicus curia counsel. Um, so it doesn't matter where I am. We're in the Third Circuit. And Dana thinks we're going to lose in the Third Circuit because we've lost before. However, because you know we were denied an injunction and, and all the courts have gotten it wrong. All the lower courts. The Supreme Court has not ruled on, an, on a vaccine mandate since 1905 in a case called Jacobson, but that case does not help them. Everyone's saying it does, but it does not. And I can get to Jacobson in just a minute, but I wanna finish what's going on right now, because in the next couple of months, the Third Circuit sitting in Pennsylvania is going to rule on our, on Dana's appeal of the denial of the injunction for the vaccine mandate for the booster in New Jersey. Uh, and there's only 13 circuits in the country. So the, thir the, the Third Circuit um, governs numerous states, including New Jersey and Pennsylvania. That's why the courts in Pennsylvania for the clients from New Jersey. Now, whoever loses is likely going to appeal. I know Dana will, we've talked about it. Dana's gonna appeal to the US Supreme Court. I'm a member of the US Supreme Court. I just moved the court for Dana to be a member of the US Supreme Court. And I'm sure that will be that will be granted. Um, and when you're going up on an emergency um, hearing for the Supreme Court, um, each justice is assigned to an area. Our justice is Justice Alito. So we're really happy about that. <laughs> we think Justice Alito will circulate the petition um, this is a very important thing. I mean, we're asking the courts to change the test for reviewing these COVID mandates and to apply the correct test, and they'll all be struck down. Once we get the correct test applied, they'll all be struck down. And I said this in the grand jury proceeding with the Corona Committee um, about a year ago um, in the opening statement for the United States. So if for any reason Justice Alito does not circulate our petition, and I think he will, and if we if we win, I think the New Jersey Attorney General will appeal. So one way or another, we're going to get before Alito, and then if for some reason he doesn't circulate our petition, we have one more shot. And we, I believe Dana will probably go for Justice Gorsuch because um, Justice Gorsuch, in my opinion, is terrific. He has his head on straight. Um, he's very matter of fact. He's very straight up. He applies the law. In fact, one of my other friends just um, did an emergency petition and lost with Amy Barrett. This is James Fetzer, who's also known as the conspiracy guy in the United States. He has a whole bunch of podcasts. He was a professor at Minnesota for years. And now he talks about all the, you know, the government fraud on our people um, from 9-11 to the Columbine, not Columbine, the uh, Sandy Hook shootings, all that stuff. He's That's what James Fetzer works on. Anyway, Gorsuch uh, did circulate his petition because they found him liable for $400,000. And this is just a professor, so a retired professor for statements he made about Sandy Hook. Um, and they wouldn't look at the evidence. So he really does have a good claim under the First Amendment. Um, so we're we're on it. We are very close to getting to the Supreme Court. Um, I think it's time. I think the Supreme Court knows it's time. Um, keep in mind the OSHA mandate and the healthcare worker mandate. Um, well, first of all, OSHA went our way 
uh, Supreme Court six to three in, in January of 22 decided that OSHA didn't have the authority to pass a COVID shot mandate. The healthcare worker mandate went the other way. It went five to four, but no liberty clause claim was brought. So the efficacy and safety of the vaccine were not considered at all. They were looking at statutory construction and the non-delegation doctrine, which has nothing to do with the evidence, the scientific evidence. And in fact, in um, Thomas's dissent, the last you know, few sentences of that dissent said, we are not looking at the importance or the safety of this vaccine. I wanna make that clear. We're just looking at whether or not um, the Secretary of um, Health has the authority to issue mandates to protect um, patients from healthcare workers, and they do. So it still was five to four, it was still a close decision, but I think we've got, I think we're gonna win at the Supreme Court. I mean, I want to believe that, of course, but it, what's happening is so wrong. The courts have been so, so wrong. And I'm just gonna tell you very quickly about Jacobson, and then I'm gonna you know, ask if there's any questions, but Jacobson versus Massachusetts came down in 1905. It was the only case in which the United States Supreme Court considered a vaccine mandate. This was a smallpox epidemic, killing hundreds of millions of people internationally. The vaccine had been around in one form or another for a hundred years, started with cowpox and moved into a real vaccine, you know, a real, unlike the COVID shots, which are not a vaccine at all. Um, and what happened was the law at hand said either all residents of Massachusetts have to get vaccinated or they have to forfeit $5. So that was right in the statute, either get the vaccine or forfeit $5, which today is about $166. So Jacobson was um, an immigrant, I think from Sweden, and he just was adamant that he had the liberty interest not to be vaccinated because he had gotten sick as a child getting vaccinated and also not to pay $5 for not getting vaccinated. So the issue before the court was whether he gets his $5 back. There was no issue of course of vaccination. And in fact, what no one knows until my recent brief to the third circuit, because I didn't even know, I looked at the transcript, finally got the transcript um, in Jacobson, uh, from you know 1903, which was they were working their way up to the Supreme Court. And what happened was he appealed in the criminal matter. He was criminally prosecuted and he was found guilty and he was fined $5. That was the penalty. And when he appealed that, the Court of Appeals said, well, if Jacobson and the government disagree about the vaccination, the government could never make him get vaccinated. The worst that could happen to him would be a $5 fine. It's exactly what the court said. I quote it in my brief to Third Circuit, say, look, even back then, the justice, judges realized you can't force vaccinate people. You can't coerce vaccination. The worst that could happen would be a $5 fine. And so the U.S. Supreme Court said, you know, the $5 fine under the circumstances with all these people dying, 93% of babies dying in certain areas, 93% of babies dying in certain areas who got the, the smallpox um, illness, the court said $5 fine is acceptable under our liberty clause. That was the case. There was no coercive vaccination. There was no, you know, $100,000 fine or loss of your job or loss of your house. That case does not support the other side. So all these law professors in general and all these lawyers and, and government lawyers have been using that case saying the case shows you can force vaccinate people. No, it doesn't. The intellectual dishonesty has been unbelievable. I mean, have they really just not read the case? Do they not know the case? I don't know the answer. And I happen to have specialized in this area, so I knew the case very well, but it is such an, an exercise of, of dishonesty, what's going on in the country and the courts. And in fact, a man named Josh Black, Blackman from South Texas College of Law in Houston wrote an article that came out in Buffalo Law Review just a few months, just a few months ago. And it's called The Irrepressible Myth 
of Jacobson versus Massachusetts. And this article is so phenomenal because he did with the with the COVID mandate challenges what I did with the school mandate challenges. Mine came out in Florida State University Law Review just a couple months ago as well. But um, Josh Blackman went through every single COVID-19 shot mandate challenge in the United States. And he showed with you know painful you know, scrutiny how the courts had just made false statements about the facts, about the law, about the holding of Jacobson, about things the Supreme Court justices have said. And so we, we now finally have you know, two law professors, I'm, I'm, I resigned, so I'm not technically a law professor right now, but I was for many years. Josh still is a tenured professor. So we finally have two who are coming forward and saying, this is wrong, what's happening? Because most law professors, like most doctors, have gag orders, essentially. If they come out and come out against Big Pharma and the technocrats and the billionaires, you know, there's ways to force out people with tenure. And so everyone's afraid. And, you know, thankfully, I'm not the only one. We have Josh Blackman now, too. So I am so pleased to have that. And I cited him in my brief to the Third Circuit, and it will also be in the Supreme Court brief. So I think we're I think things are finally looking up. But had we known that these big organizations who said they were going to protect us all from this, we're going to fail miserably. We might have gotten on the ball a little faster. We thought we had good people. Uh, we, you know, millions came in, millions and millions in donations came in. The public trying to support these entities, um, America's Frontline Doctors, Children's Health Defense, um, to get, you know, to support the lawyers. And they turned around and hired lawyers who just simply were clearly not qualified. Uh, one lawyer they hired went to an unaccredited online law school. I mean, the rest of them went to third and fourth tier law schools. I mean, you, you don't have to be a law professor to know if you're fighting the government, the Department of Justice, you better have top notch lawyers from top law schools who are top of their class and who specialize in this area of law, because that's what we're up against. And if you don't have that on our side, there's no chance of winning. So we finally have some people on our side who are very serious about winning this. And I think we will. And the, th the fact that July 6th, uh, on July 6th, a ruling was issued by a Florence court, um, Italian judge, a lady judge, uh, ruling that the COVID booster mandate was unconstitutional under the Italian constitution and also the German constitution. So she kind of threw that in. <laughs> Obviously it was dictum, um, but she said this, we don't even know what's in it. She said, it's killing so many people. Um, it doesn't work. She said, you can't require this. A psychologist in that case had been terminated for not getting the booster and she's reversed all that and said that's unconstitutional. So we have that, thankfully that precedent, but I would have liked to see our country this country of liberty and freedom, supposedly, um, with the Statue of Liberty, you know, in the middle of New York, I would have liked to see our country be the first to declare these COVID shots unconstitutional, but we weren't, but hopefully we'll be the second. <laughs> so that's where we're at right now. And um, I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you very much for, it's it's a big story you presented. And uh, <laughs> you showed us how, how people get under pressure, how you put people under pressure to do what they normally would not do. Mm. And you showed us also that it's very inhomogeneous, the, the, the justice in the different parts of your country are not the same. You have different, you have different uh, courts that act in a different way. And mm. it's very interesting to compare this. And I think uh, it's much, there is much more chances 
to win somewhere in your in one of your states and to have to have good decisions by some judges who are who are not bribable who are not dependent on some influence mm -hmm. media or so on in germany it's much more difficult it seems i think uh, in germany we have um, the, the people who are employed by by the yes by the court the judges and state attorneys and so they are the state attorneys are dependent on the ministers of justice who are politicians mm -hmm. And they, if the minister says, don't follow this case, then they don't follow. This is yeah. possible in Germany, and this mm -hmm. is horrible. And the judges are dependent whether they, they can climb up the ladder of, of, of their profession. So it's, I think that we have to do a lot with our, with our system. And um, I, we, we may learn a lot of what's going on now. And we can compare what's going on in in United States and compare what's going on in Europe, and I think this will be very interesting if we want to shape a new system of of law and a new system of justice in our states in Europe. So right. thank you very much for your for your examples and for this great uh, yeah your, the great knowledge. Bring those things together, and I, I found it very interesting. I just got lucky. I mean, this is the area of law that I was interested in. I spent, you know, hundreds of hours studying Liberty Clause. I published an article in 2008 called Elements of Liberty, describing how the court handles Liberty Clause cases, how they determine whether a right is fundamental or not. And no lawyer in any of the cases has gone through that analysis because they don't know. They just don't know. And you have to do it. Now, this, could the courts do it themselves? Sure, the clerks could have done it themselves, but they didn't. And we, we as lawyers really are the responsible parties for bringing that authority to the attention of the courts. Now, one of the things I keep getting, I keep getting these questions, why now it's over, isn't it? The shots are over. The mandates are like no longer in effect. I said, first of all, this is precedent that must be slammed down. This, this precedent needs to be reversed because it sets a horrible, it's unprecedented what's going on. You've got to, you've got to, we need to reaffirm the right to reject medication. Let me give you one example. Yeah. At USC, USC is a, I went to law school there, they gave me a scholarship there. I mean, I had a lot of positive feelings for USC until recently. USC is making all of their students take all the vaccines, I mean, the, the vaccine, all the shots and the booster, and then they threw in the flu shot. So now they're at, they never had a flu shot mandate at USC. I went to law school there. Now they're adding more and more vaccine mandates because they got away with it with the COVID-19 shots. You see what's happening? Next, you know, it's going to be something else. They can put anything in this. They can call anything a vaccine. And I had this, not an argument, I had a disagreement with, um, well, I mean, the lawyer I'm working with now out of New Jersey and also another case coming up um, called Griner versus Biden out of, it's coming up through the Utah court, through the 10th circuit. And what the lawyers keep saying is that this isn't a vaccine, therefore Jacobson doesn't apply. And I keep telling them, no, 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 that's not what you want to say. Because if you say that, they can call anything a vaccine and get it within this, this exception. Yeah, yeah. So they did already. So what they you want to do is show the court a vaccine it's is a medical treatment. It is subject to strict scrutiny. Anything yes. you put in the body is subject to strict scrutiny. I, I talk about cases where they want to dig a bullet out of, out of a suspect's body because he shot the shopkeeper and the shopkeeper shot him back and he had a bullet lodged and the court said, you can't take the bullet out of him to prove your case. You can't go into his body. They kept saying, you can't go beneath the skin, beneath the skin. This is the US Supreme Court, Winston versus Lee. Um, the only thing that's been allowed in this country is blood drawing, 
from an unconscious motorist in like a one car accident where the cops can smell alcohol. Yeah. The court said, because blood drawing has no risks. That's why we can draw blood even without consent. But the court talked in detail about the risks involved in extracting a bullet. And, and the court said if the risks are, are high or if they're unknown, if they're unknown risks, you can't dig into someone's body. So this is, these are the authorities I'm using to try to persuade the Third Circuit and the U.S. Supreme Court. You can't do this. You can cite the cross of Bayer, of Bayer uh, who in, the, in Germany, who told the managers who were gathering there in the World Health Summit, he told them that for sure this is a gene therapy. The boss of the biggest pharmaceutical enterprise, he told it publicly, of course, it is a gene therapy. And two years ago, nobody would have accepted it. This is what well, he it, said. But, he but you know, Anna, happy about it. But Anna Garner gave me the Moderna SEC filing. And in that SEC filing, the Moderna called it gene therapy throughout. No place was it called a vaccine. And no place in the entire SEC, I mean, multi, I mean dozens of pages, it was called gene therapy. So even the manufacturers were calling it gene therapy. They started calling it a vaccine to trigger the public's cognitive association between vaccines and good health. You see what they did? And again, only because of my background in constitutional law and how language affects the brain and the thought processes did I know this. It's, it's almost like I feel like I've been guided my whole life in these various, various areas of research that I've all come together to use speech to, to persuade people, to use speech to fool people, to use pressure like Facebook to say, if you're a good person, you get you do the right thing, you get vaccinated. And one of my friend's mothers said to me, yeah, I got vaccinated because I want to do the right thing. And I said, the right thing for who? For the pharmaceutical company? Because it's not solidarity with the pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> can, I, can I ask a few questions with regards to this uh, Jeffrey Epstein? Sure. Yeah. So I was wondering, um, so Jeffrey Epstein, of course, he cannot have influenced or like uh, whatever, let's say, compromised um, every politician in the world. But I mean, maybe, you know, with these celebrities or like these high, high strung people that got to be on his island, maybe so he, he um, you know, got uh, well influenced or, or like had had power. If you assume this idea is correct, that he that he really has this insurance policy by compromising these people, like collecting photographs of like compromising situations or whatever. Um, so he, of course, he would be like a hotspot of um, of power with regards to maybe bribing them into going into a certain direction. But do you think he, I mean, he cannot have been like the string puller because like what kind of, um, you know, in what, what would he then have told them what to do like in a certain situation? I mean, who's behind him then using these kinds of, uh, you know, activities or like using these kind of th that compromising material in order to get these people to do something? And could that also have been some sort of, um, you know, if we look at this whole Corona thing happening, how important do you think these maybe, uh, you know, these these uh, this problematic past of some of the people involved, uh, what kind of role could that, that have played? Well, let me answer that by explaining a conversation I had with a friend of mine named Lisa Bath, the first lady I met in Houston when I moved there 20 some years ago in 2000. And her father, James Bath, introduced George W. Bush to the Bin Ladens. Lisa's dad 
owned Southwest Services, which is a jet refueling airport station in Houston. He knew everybody. He got the contract to refuel all the jets, the military jets. Very powerful man. He introduced the Bushes and Bin Ladens back in the 70s. So this is someone who knows, Lisa should know about politics. Her dad was a very powerful, um, good friend of George W. Bush. In fact, Lisa's dad was the one who snuck in and stole the eye exam for them to get into the um, National Guard flight, flight School because neither George W. Bush nor her father could pass the, uh, the eye test. That, remember these tests was like this, you remember that? Well, they stole it, they memorized it, they went the next day and they had memorized it, so they got in. But And, and he admits it now, it's in Fahrenheit 9-11, if you watch the movie by Michael Moore. So getting back to your question, what Lisa said to me once is she goes, Dina, this is how it works in politics. Everyone is looking for dirt on everyone else. This huge matrix of this person knows something about this person. This person knows something about this person. And this enormous matrix is built where if you have a problem with someone who's maybe three degrees of separation from you, someone you have dirt on knows his wife and uh, something like that. She said it's all about how you barter in dirt on other people in politics. So back to Jeffrey Epstein, how could he possibly be an influence? I'm not sure. But what I do believe is that even if he only had direct dirt on, let's say, Bill Clinton and some of these movie stars and whatnot, um, he now has you know a card to play with Bill Clinton and Bill Clinton has dirt on other people. So if he threatens Bill Clinton, that I'm gonna show this photograph of you and a 12 year old, unless you do this for me, Bill Clinton can then put pressure on the person he has dirt on. And it's like a domino effect. So this is enormous matrix of people in the top ranks of wealth, power, and money. And they all know somebody that they can use to get to the person they want to shut up or the person they want to do something for them. And she told me this is how it works. And I was just blown away. I, I was young. I was 35 at the time. So, um, but I think that that's why these photographs and, and videos of these various very powerful men can have a, a ripple effect throughout all of the billionaires, all of the world's leaders, because there's either a friendship there or there's something going on with all of these people. And most of them are interconnected somehow. So that's why I think Jeffrey Epstein's influence goes so much further than just the men he has videos and photographs on. Wow. And, Is that um, and do, well, I mean, do you think that, I mean, there seem to be quite a few of these hotspots um, like, you know, what Jeffrey Epstein provided, maybe he's the most um, um, exclusive, used to be like the most exclusive one, because like with this, I think it was also called Lolita Island, this place where he brought the, the girls and the, the people. And um, so, but do you think they're all interconnected? Like what would be happening? Well, like, for instance, this Dutroux case, that's also very mysterious. And maybe there also seem to be a lot of people involved in these kind of um, things going on there. And um, so do you think it's it's all one giant network or is it like this, this these people just popping up, up uh, by chance? There's this Dutroux guy, for instance, you know, at least there's uh, rumors that it was obviously not him alone, but like other people, uh, a lot of other people involved. Um, uh, or people did, I think some, there's uh, also like some several investigations on that case. Um, so um, do you think it's all a giant interconnected network? I do. And let me tell you what, yes, I do. I think it's a giant interconnected network. I think that the uh, country's most prominent families um, have managed to maintain power in the same way that I'm talking about. 
um, having dirt of some kind on one another um, or ties to liaisons or maybe even marriages. I mean, so some way, one way or another, they are connected. Now, after I wrote the Jeffrey Epstein book, um, I got connected to some reporters who found me, uh, four male reporters. And one of those men was Nick Bryant. Nick Bryant wrote a book called The Franklin Scandal. And this was like, gosh, 10 years ago. That was about the sex trafficking scheme in the uh, government in Nebraska. And he said, you know, when I looked at your book, the same names popped up. Well, what amazing surprise. In the first few book, in the first few pages of my first book on Jeffrey Epstein, I said one of the things that bothered me so much that the reason why I started digging harder on this issue was the same names came up. Why is Alan Dershowitz involved in all these cases? Why is Ken Starr involved in all these cases? I know he passed away last week. You know, why, why are these same David Boys? David Boys was the one who took Bill Gates' deposition. Back in the day, and Kavanaugh, our Supreme Court justice, was the prosecutor. I mean, you look, it's the same group of men in as lawyers, as the top, you know, business executives, whatever, and they're all connected. And so I believe it's a network. And yes. Isn't there a competition? It feels like this is a network of service providers providing dirt. And uh, isn't there a competition? You can buy those guys who are who are searching for dirt who make photographs they are enterprises they are on the market if you want to kill someone with that you just hire someone like that so there should be a competition there should be not a network but uh, maybe a competition of of such firms what do you think about that so you mean um you mean the people who have knowledge like the reporters can be bought off is that what you're saying it's a, it's a weapon it's a weapon to find dirt on someone, you can right. kill someone, and the weapon dealers are those who make the photos, who, who make the, who try to to find out the dirt on some people. So I think you can hire them if you're rich and you want to kill someone publicly. You just hire such a person, and say find something. So. Wolfgang, I think that's a, that's two different things. That's I mean, if you have like someone to, sort of like looking through the dirty laundry in the past of someone, or like, but this seems to be. I mean, this is more like a trap. Like I'm, I mean, luring people in into such a situation. For instance, Epstein would invite people to like a wild party and whatever they get drunk, and then they have a compromising situation where there's where they take photos of. I think that's a, a maybe a little bit of a different setup, as I understand how this kind of uh, things work. Like from what Dina said, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the kind of money involved, um, sure, they knock off people, they try to buy off people. Um, I think there's like Nick Bryant, for example, he he never got another job in publishing. He was publishing for some of the top, the Atlantic, you know, big papers, and he couldn't get a job in publishing. His lot, he lost his condo in New York. I mean, he, they hurt him. Um, I can't be bought off. They know that too. And um, but my husband and I both faced some unusual financial setbacks. I mean, really unusual throughout our lives. We've never had these issues where they're rising right now. So that's weird. So I think that they try to put you down one way or another. And if they can't, and if you become powerful enough, yeah, they'll kill you. That's what I think will happen or can happen. Um, but that's why for me, I, my religion is what keeps me going. I don't believe that anyone can kill me unless, unless God allows it. <laughs> that's my opinion. So, you know, that, that's why I don't, I don't live in fear. I'm not afraid of any of these people. I, good luck. I mean, I, I think that they're going to face the wrath of a much higher being if they, um, 
if they don't understand that that is what will happen in due course, that there's no way around it. You know, I just got my yoga certification. I'm now a hot yoga teacher. <laughs> and in the yoga world, we, we learn about karma and there's no way of stopping it. You can't buy your way out of it. It is there. It is a, it is a accumulation of the energy you create through your actions, your thoughts and your, and your movements and speech. And so I, that's what keeps me going. I, I don't know, you know, people have said, you better watch your back. And I said, well, I'll do the best I can. Um, but I, I, I think they'll do anything. I mean, Alan Dershowitz hired Black Cube. You're, you're or Harvey Weinstein. They were running people off the roads in, in, in Palm Beach, running the families of the girls off the roads. I mean, literally. So, yeah, they're doing all sorts of things. But I, I don't know if that answers your question. I'm not really sure. In some, I would say they're all connected one way or another. Um, they're the elite group of people in this country. They think the rest of us are like cattle. They can fool us, prod us, push us in a certain direction, and that we, you know, we're smarter than they are too. And these people aren't that smart. I mean, look at look how Bill Gates presents himself in, in, in front of a camera. The guy is, I mean, has no talent. I don't know what his IQ test scores were, but I mean, the guy is missing a card in the deck. I mean, there's something wrong with him. Um, so they're not smarter than us. Um, the smartest people in this country are often just, you know, doctors, lawyers, or professors. We've got to change that. We're talking about bringing back a meritocracy, and that's something that U.S. Freedom Flyers has been talking about, bringing back a meritocracy in this country, because right now what we have is just, you know, the, the people, even the Rhodes Scholars, they, they come from families who have wealth, and they're not, they're not, those Rhodes Scholar positions are not going to people who have the talent, they're going to people who have the wealth, and that needs to change. So that's something we're working on, is trying to break apart this network of kind of mediocre people who are putting down the real talents among Americans by wielding power and wealth over the rest of us. I, mean, I have one last question. So the uh, basically, I mean, okay, when we're now looking at these uh, these folks involved, yeah, um, I mean, these people going to to this island, and especially when we're looking at like maybe younger children, it's it's needs to have. I mean, it's a certain personality. I mean, you have to have like a quite a whatever problematic personality to be um, even, you know, to be lured into doing something like that or even looking for such an opportunity because that's, I mean, that's really, um, you know, quite something very terrible to do. So I was wondering, um, you know, how do they pick these people? How do they recognize these, these people that they can then compromise? Well, I think it's a slippery slope. I are originally drawn into the power They may be average people like me who just, um, you know, they're, they're viewed as someone who may be helpful to the bad guys. And so they say, well, here's a, you know, here's a, well, uh, a person who knows a lot. Uh, let's bring her in. And the uh, first thing they do is uh, try to seduce you or something, get photos of you and maybe some kind of compromised position. And now you're kind of stuck. And one thing leads to another. They slip, they slip things in your drink all the time. I have personally had um, the date rape drug put into my drink at least three times that I know of. Um, uh, luckily, I got so sick, started throwing up or, you know, literally had to go home. I was sick. I, I, my, I, I knew something was wrong um, and I didn't finish the drink. Um, but I'm saying this is really, really common to use drugs to get women in compromised positions. And when you use testosterone based rupees, um, the women become very aggressive. They become like, you know, 18 year old boys aggressing sexually on all the men around them because It does that to you. And so then they have footage of you approaching men, grabbing men. You see what they do? They find one way or another to draw you in and get something on you. Then they use that to get you to a higher level. 
That's my opinion. That's just from what I've seen and from what I've heard. I don't know. But most people aren't that strong. And if our people were stronger, if they had more religion, and by religion, I mean a set of values. It doesn't have to be Christian or Jewish. It has to be a set of values. If they were stronger with their set of values and had stronger families and stronger communities, um, they may be able to withstand this pressure, but most people just aren't that strong. And that's something we need to deal with too. And we talk about it as well. By the way, my client just asked me to yeah. join the call. I have to go and join them, but thank you so oh, much. That um, is really impressive. Thank you so much. Any time, I'm, you know, I'm German. So anytime I, I'm dying to get, I've never been to Germany, but um, my mom was half German. So I'm, I'm interested in going sometime. I hope to meet you all in person someday. That would be lovely. Thank you. very. Thanks so much. Thank you. See you later. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Wow. I mean, that's uh, quite something. Okay. Um, now, um, I hope our guest is still with us. Um, um, Alexandra, yes, are you, are you still? You <laughs> uh, yes, I'm here. Well, I mean, it was a completely different topic, but I think very important to look at these these political. Yeah, whatever, these uh, well, yeah, and... they're all interrelated. That's, um, you know, I was fascinated to listen to this because you know, that's how they, they, that's how they create the cabal in the first place. And then the cabal can do whatever. And I'm just describing what they've done. <laughs> so part of yeah. what they've done. Well, okay, let's continue with your presentation. Yeah, okay. So, um, uh, hold on. Yeah, I think I was here. So, yeah, I have um, a couple more slides. It's, you know, short part, but it's actually, we're getting to a very interesting part. Uh, let me put it on projection. So yeah, we we talked about this. We talked that you know the tests uh, directly from vials uh, show the or directly from batches show that this product is uh, designed to be toxic, designed to be deadly because it actually is opposite when it's uh, broken and doesn't conform to its specification. Um, the so what I found later, you know, I started. Uh, thinking about and reading more about the manufacturing of mRNA. And I didn't know much about it at the beginning. I, I now have connected with a number of experts and I understand it better. And I have a lot of documents, including uh, from Pfizer, uh, about how this product is being made. And what I learned from it is uh, I frankly have an opinion today that it, it cannot be made at the scale that these uh, people are claiming. So that's also part of a lie and part of a fraud. Uh, first of all, mRNA manufacturing is uh, it's a challenge even in the lab scale. So if you want to make some micrograms of it, it's a challenge. And people who uh, who have done it, you know, they've described it to me. Uh, it has uh, loss, uh, low yields. So there are multiple steps of making it, and each step creates um, some sort of a not hundred percent yield. Uh, and you lose fidelity of the product at every step. So for example, this is just an example, if you have five-step process and it has an optimistic yield of 80%, then at the end you have 30% of the final product and 70% of impurities that you need to remove. And if you have a yield of something like 60%, you only have 7% and you need to remove 93% of impurities. Also, of course, you will have to scale up all of your raw materials to achieve some sort of a target that you need, some sort of a weight of the product that you need. Um, the mRNA uh, is very fragile, especially the ones that they're, they're using 
uh, now in these injections, they are large chains. So previously, the only approved product on the market that's using RNA is using a very small one. It's called uh, small interfering uh, RNA. It's something like 100 nucleotides in length. The ones that are in Pfizer and Moderna are 4,000 and, and higher than 4,000 nucleotides. So it's very large. And the larger it is, the more fragile it is. It, it's not stable. They've modified it uh, with numerous modifications to make it more stable. So that's why it's not human. It's just some, you know, strange sequence, uh, uh, but it still is unstable. Uh, and also it needs to be capped and has a tail and those two are separate processes. Each one of them breaks the product as well. So it's not in complete capping, uh, it's, it's, not, it's in complete tails. Uh, LNPs we already discussed, the lipid nanoparticles, they can um, also break because of various things, including uh, pegylation imperfection. And when they break, mRNA also breaks. Uh, and as I, as we see before, there are large impurities process related and, and some others can be introduced uh, through bad practices uh, and they need to be removed, but you cannot aggressively remove anything from this product because it's very fragile. So you cannot use the same, you know, centrifugation, filtration, mixing techniques that they use in chemical manufacturing. Um, now, uh, now manufacturers are claiming, so I have records that show that on average, these batches are something like 200 to 300 liters, which already stretches imagination. But recently, I uh, that's per batch, right? And uh, the recently I obtained records that showed one batch of Pfizer was manufactured with 12 million doses in it, which means it's around 900 liters of mRNA. And my colleagues at this point started laughing and they said, I don't even know that there are, you know, bio bags. Uh, that 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 big being produced, uh, and so uh, so that's already you know why are they doing this? I don't know what's going on. Are they over diluting? Are are they mixing multiple batches? Are they mislabeling? Are they just relabeling old product? I don't know. Any of this can be possible uh, because, uh, as I will discuss shortly, they have no rules that apply to them. Uh, the, there's also you know when we're talking about scale like this. Um, the, there's a availability of raw materials is questionable. Again, the, my colleagues were questioning, you know, can they get the enzymes at this scale? Because again, you have to have everything multiplied by the yields to, to reach your final target. And uh, also these batches are produced simultaneously by numerous companies at the scale and at the speed. So I don't know whether this is possible or not. Uh, and um, the Pfizer was already reporting chemical instability even at 37 liters. That was in Pfizer European Medicines Agency documents that they said that enzymatic reaction to make RNA was already stopping at that level because you know at the large volumes chemicals don't balance at the same way as they at the small volumes. Um, now even if you can produce something like this at a large volume. What happens is it, the product becomes super heterogeneous. So we have problems with the small batch, but when the batch is large, now you have lipids and water and lipids are floating in a huge volume. So they start uh, separating and they tend to go to the top and they also tend to form the into clumps. So now you have the mRNA in, in very concentrated quantities floating around in a large volume of other stuff, including water. And, uh, and that, then that huge volume needs to be filled into 0.45 milliliter containers, vials, 
And of course, you will have a whole bunch of vials uh, that are you know, blanks or near blanks uh, that don't contain much of the mRNA at all, may, may contain metal contaminations or whatever. And then you will have some super concentrated mRNA deadly shots. And that's, that explains the reality where we see you know, most people seemingly fine after these injections, at least at the beginning. Um, they may develop something later on, they might get COVID. You know, this, this increases probability of getting COVID. But then we see also some people drop dead within minutes of injection. So uh, that's that's what happens. This is the reality of this because there's this huge heterogeneity of the vials. It's not possible to homogenize it afterwards to keep it like you know, like milk. It's very homogene. The natural milk is not. You have the cream up and you have the water down, mm -hmm. and. Um, they, they have technical process to homogenize the whole thing, but you cannot do it without disturbing, without destroying the RNA, isn't it? Yeah, right, exactly. So with milk, it's maybe possible, but even then, if you look at milk homogenized at microscope, you'll see, you know, clumps and stuff. Uh, and uh, and the, the, these, these, these products cannot because they, it, they will break it and it continues breaking, you know, uh, throughout the whole process. And all the impurities that they can't remove, they stay continuously, and it's just—it's a huge mess, complete mess. They—it's uh, the, uh, in my opinion, this product cannot be made to good manufacturing practices, and I suspect that they knew about it because they've tried for 20 years to put this on the market, and they always ran up to you know maybe early human studies, but that's it, and then they couldn't get any further because of the safety issues and because I suspect they couldn't make it consistent you know so uh, so they knew that and then they decided okay well now we have to push it through this big scam which um, I'll, I'll explain how how they put it in the in the contract uh, form um so and and you know I'm pretty sure that these products cannot be made in conformity to the label at this scale and at, at the speed and the manufacturers are well aware of it and uh, so that's why they're not doing it um, so let's look at the structure of this organization, the overall organization, the big picture. And this is the organizational chart. Uh, it's turned on the side, uh, but it still is an organizational chart. And this is from Vaccines and Related Biologics uh, Advisory Committee meeting from October 22nd, 2020. So this is, is uh, all the Operation Warp Speed uh, meeting together and describing their organizational structure. So notice a couple of things. Uh, who is in charge of this operation is U.S. Department of Defense, Chief Operating Officer. Uh, who is uh, Chief Scientific Officer is HHS and FDA. Then, uh, obviously, this part of the chart, it's the top part, and these are, these are people in charge, U.S. Government, Department of Defense, and HHS. Uh, these people are not in charge, although they're getting huge amounts of money. So they're happy and they're keeping the plants going. Now, uh, also the top part includes manufacturing, supply production, distribution, clinical trials. And um, I, now there are many contracts available that were made by uh, Department of Defense, HHS, with all of these uh, vaccine manufacturers. And they reveal a lot of things about the structure. Uh, so the contracts are available through Securities and Exchange Commission, commission uh, uh, disclosures to shareholders, and I, I read a lot of them. Uh, so it does reveal the structure where the government took over pharmaceutical industry by giving them huge amounts of money 
and signing these uh, very restrictive contracts that control everything. But the government designed the clinical trials, the government designs uh, everything about it, uh, and then the FDA just approves it. Well, FDA is part of the government. Um, so um, let's see who is really, really making these products. And uh, here's from the same meeting, another PowerPoint slide. Uh, this is Operation Warp Speed, BARDA. BARDA is a military biologics development agency. Uh, and they're saying, well, here's our vaccine manufacturing portfolio. So again, through these contracts, uh, there are contracts for all of these um, entities listed here available. And through these contracts, it's very clear that uh, what they're calling vaccine supporting efforts is in fact what's manufacturing the vaccines. So for example, Emergent Biosolutions, which is I circled here, it's one of the centers for manufacturing uh, that BARDA set up long time ago. Uh, the contracts that I read uh, go back to 2012, uh, where Emergent was established as a vaccine manufacturer, the defense vaccine, vaccine manufacturer, ostensibly for flu vaccines at the time, and they also said, you know, we're going to build this so-called surge capacity. Um, so there were huge amounts of money given. The contract is from 2012 to 2037 in different options. And then in 2020, they executed option to do uh, COVID vaccines for, so Emergent was manufacturing both AstraZeneca's and Janssen's vaccine, uh, and they were supplier for them. And they were not following any good manufacturing practice rules, by the way. Uh, then there are also other uh, entities that are very important, like Ology. Well, now it's now it's been converted into this new monstrous. It's called uh, National Resilience Company, and this is a DoD essentially buying a bunch of manufacturing plants from pharma companies and establishing their own manufacturing uh, base. And it's millions of square feet. They have huge amounts of money, and they're manufacturing these products. Um, so Texas AM, also another one, that one it seems to be manufacturing for things like Novavax because they use some sort of insect line. Uh, I don't know what that means. And then you can also see a lot of other. So because of the complex manufacturing requires, it's not just, you know, making something. It's also having uh, qualified staff, having all the equipment that you need, having supplies, disposables, access to raw materials. It's a huge infrastructure that you need to have in place. And it was not possible. It's not like you can go to a Ford Motor Company and tell them, uh, here's 10 billion bucks. I need a million new cars in six months. And even Ford with establishment already manufacturing can't do that because you can't even, you can't even secure raw materials in time. Uh, now, imagine the same scenario happens when, you know, the government goes to Ford, General Motors, and Toyota and tells them all simultaneously to do that. I mean, not, no amount of money will produce this miracle in six months. So it wasn't. It was they, they just gave money to these companies and then directed them to go to these companies that they already established for a long time to produce the product. So this is who is making the product. And these guys are just the front. Uh, they have some, also some some aspects of manufacturing, but for the most part, it's 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 make is being done here, and all of this is controlled by the Department of Defense. So uh, specifically, the contracts um, included uh, no accountability. Um, so let, you know, let me go to the next page. Yeah, so the bad news is that the, this is a, a Department of Defense product entirely. So people don't realize that, you know, things like, oh, it's a military operation gets thrown around. 
Well, it, it is actually military operation from A to Z. Uh, it's not just that they, you know, they used some, uh, you know, military distribution for just speed and, and getting it to different states and using refrigeration. No, that's not how, how it works. Uh, all of these contracts are with DOD. So there are hundreds of them with all kinds of companies. Uh, they're all the, so the, all the contracts with DOD, DOD is the purchaser. DOD gives them huge amounts of money. As I said, they already have established manufacturing base. For example, the first contract with Pfizer was for $10 billion to deliver 100 million doses of vaccine and up to 500 million. And there were bonuses for faster delivery, which to me says, why are they making 900 liters of it? Well, because they're not accountable and they have bonus if they ship all these doses on time. Okay, that's one of the reasons. Uh, and uh, there, there was no capacity to fulfill them on time, except if you use the already established DOD vendors. Uh, and uh, there's no accountability other than the company needs to make reasonable effort, whatever that means. But the contracts are extremely micromanaging on every step of operations. Uh, also clinical trials are designed by the government, not by the pharma manufacturer. Regulatory interactions are completely taken over by the government. So, for example, pharma cannot independently talk to the FDA in any way. And if they have a meeting, uh, the Department of Defense representatives need to be in that meeting. So that to me says it's not an arm's length relationship. It's a total control of the relationship by the DOD. Um, now, in other things, the distribution of this product. So the product gets shipped to the DOD. All of the vaccine doses in the U.S. get shipped to the Department of Defense. They do not get shipped to uh, independent and licensed and regulated pharmaceutical distributors as all normal pharmaceuticals go to. Uh, uh, they're, in this, they're taken out of that system also into this black box of DOD-only distribution. And in fact, the contracts with the vaccinators explicitly state that this product is the Department of Defense property or US government property until it gets injected into the person. And that, that uh, the, you cannot independently test the vials, you cannot get independent access to the vials and it's called diversion of, of government property. Um, so we cannot, so they're prohibiting to test the vials. And, and, and as I said before, manufacturers are not testing the vials, neither regulators are testing the vials. Nobody's testing the vials uh, and you're not allowed to. Uh, and also in the same contract, there's a clause that exempts them all from, from any liability as long as they follow the orders. And that same clause describes the product as civilian and military application. Uh, now, there are also some uh, ex-US contracts with other countries like European Union and uh, Brazil and uh, Albania became uh, available. Uh, European Union contracts are still largely redacted, but I've seen unredacted Albanian contract and uh, you know, we were told that all the contract clauses were the same. Uh, so those contracts explicitly prohibit testing of the vials by, uh, by foreign governments or, or anyone there. Uh, and in fact, they also uh, you know, indemnify Pfizer for anything, provide huge liability cover. The government is, is forced to waive all the rules and regulations and good, like good manufacturing practices, distribution practices, any controls that exist in order to indemnify Pfizer. And also that they cannot change their national laws to make it otherwise. So by signing this contract, they sign away their national sovereignty to a pharmaceutical company, 
you know, how ridiculous is that? So, um, so that, that's, that's, how, that's how they're avoiding all this liability and they're prohibiting batch testing, prohibiting vial testing. Uh, however, you know, you can prohibit all you want, as you've seen, uh, we, there is a large covert testing activity has been going on and we found all these answers already. We found that these products are, are dirty, contaminated, do not conform at all to what the label says, and they're hugely toxic and they're toxic by design. But this explains to you how they can all get away with it and how they can just not follow any rules because these rules do not apply to them. This is a military product made by the military, for the military, distributed by the military and injected into people. Uh, and it, it's a total secret what that is. So in conclusion, what I would like to say is that these injections are definitely not pharmaceuticals and people should stop thinking of them as you know, they should have stopped thinking about them as vaccine a long time ago, but they should stop thinking about them as pharmaceutical or medicine or anything that has to do with that. They are not. Um, and U.S. and government, uh, U.S. government, DOD, pharma collusion enabled this violation of all established rules and safeguards. Uh, these products are deadly by design, intentional, uh, and they cannot be produced according to good manufacturing practices. So these, these, these people who are claiming this, you know, we've we can, you know, recode your genes and cure any disease. It's total garbage that they're making. So not, nobody can do that. That that whole mRNA revolution, it's a scam, in my opinion. Uh, and they should all be stopped immediately, and this should be investigated properly. Uh, and we should uh, bring those responsible uh, to justice, to accountability. Until that happens, we cannot move on from this. And I completely agree with the previous speaker when she said, you know, it's not it's not that, oh, mandates are over and now let's all go on vacation and uh, we, we don't, you know, we can forget about it. No, because they're doing it more and more. They're converting all existing vaccines into the mRNA platform. And guess what? This is not going to stop at the vaccines. They're going to start producing all kinds of medicines with this platform because now they can. Now they can only do eight mouse study and declare it safe and effective. So that's why we have to focus on this more uh, and focus especially on prosecution and bringing those responsible to justice. Well, so you think this is, I mean, but what's the, um, I mean, okay, naively one could think this operation is so giant and it's so important, um, you know, to bring these vaccines uh, to everyone that it can only be run by some, uh, giant, uh, you know, for this giant lo logistical um, uh, task, we need to get the military involved because they have, I mean, they have logistic experience and they have all these contacts. And I mean, could it be, uh, you know, could there be an, I mean, I guess not, but could there be a naive um, answer to why the military is so much involved? Well, it's a, it, yes, it is a naive answer, but then if they wanted to do everything, you know, if they, if the purpose of it was uh, a good purpose, the benign purpose to try to make people, uh, you know, heal and, and cure this disease, uh, then the safety, safety, safety guidelines should be followed and they don't follow a single one of them. So you can't, you can't just say, well, you know, because it's such a disaster, we have to do everything wrong and produce more deaths in the process and that's okay so it, it just create it, it's not logical in my opinion I, I i it just creates one huge mess 
Um, yeah, I, I don't see any benefit of doing it that way. And it's not like the military has some kind of a more miraculous uh, cap capability versus private manufacturers. Private manufacturers make lots of products, very high quality products at huge speeds. They have, in fact, incredible experience in this. And so this can be done. You know, military is not, you know, critical or required here yeah, domestically to do this. It looks, it looks as if the military is just, yeah, it's just blind that they help shooting their own people. Exactly. And we do have a lot of uh, very brave uh, uh, whistleblowers inside the, the, the military operations who were stopped, like uh, Theresa Long, for example, uh, who were trying to stop this and they're bringing this up to attention and they're reporting this and they're saying, you know, I will not give it to my uh, to my people. Uh, I will not give it to the soldiers in my base. I mean, they they they're facing huge uh, repercussions, but they're still speaking up and they're explaining how this is wrong and you shouldn't do it. And yes, it did it 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 is um, damaging our military also as we speak because they're pushing it on the soldiers and pushing it on, you know, the the pilots especially, and uh, so it, it's it's hurting them. Um, and that's a, a, another reason why it should be stopped. You, you, I just asked myself, what is what is with the NATO? You spoke about the European Union, but the European Union just has the role to get the money, to collect collect the money and and provide the industry with money. But the the the, the function of of the military is which is which is uh, working together, cooperating in the NATO. Um, there should be some advice for German troops in Germany who are a member of the NATO. If it is a big thing coming from the from the uh, Department of Defense and we are partners in NATO. So mm -hmm. we had this observation that when the whole thing started, when they started to uh, to distribute the, the vials, there was the, the German army going to institutions and there were some higher doctors who applied then the vials. And so it was there were no normal doctors. But this was an action where the where the German army was employed to care for the distribution and who was in charge of, of keeping all this all this stuff. And then, then normally when the German when the German army does something, the parliament has to decide on everything the army does. And exactly. Exactly. I so, I don't remember any decision of the German Parliament. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's it's U.S. Department of Defense just went to you know German Army, but I'm sure they went to all other NATO militaries, and they said, "Here, you will inject it into your people. By the way, you can't know what's in it. You know how how is this okay?" It is not. And, yeah. And that's what's going on, and that's the crime that's being committed. They've contracted all this. They 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 created this legal on paper structure, but guess what? It's not it it, it it's not legal to contract for killing and injuring people. Uh, and so they so that for that reason, you have to this needs to be investigated and stopped. It is so so important that we have all this outspoken. It's so important that it's documented. It's so important. That everyone could know. And thank you very, very much for your work. It's it's great. And well, yeah, thank you for inviting me, guys. And uh, uh, you know, anyone can 
uh, reach me through you. And uh, if anybody has questions or wants to see the actual documents, I, all, all I'm showing is available publicly. It's from publicly available materials. Yeah, we Thank have to really, much. we have to publish a list of all these documents. I think that would be important so everyone can really um, look at that or maybe you have a, a source, uh, you know, that because that is really, I'm, I'm actually pretty shocked because this makes it seem like an even, you know, I mean, it's, it's all connected. It's not just like people, whatever, mm -hmm. rushing along for, uh, you know, being the first in the market and then maybe doing like little mistakes or larger mistakes by in the production process. But it seems to be like a well orchestrated kind of yeah. effort it's a, in the way that you present yeah. it here. Yeah, absolutely. Operation, international controlled operation. International like. controlled operation, exactly. And also these these suppliers that I was showing, the manufacturers, they're all over the world. A lot of them are in, in Germany as well, and in, in Belgium and you know all, all over you know, India, China China is participating in, in a large way here. I didn't have time to cover, but it's all all connected all over the world. And what kind of what role does Russia play in this? Actually, well, Russia, I haven't seen Russia in these contracts. What I've seen is definitely China, Germany, US connection and investments into the same entities and then DOD giving them, you know, $10 billion. So you just gave $10 billion to something that where CCP is, a, is an equity holder. But anyway, so those those are definitely connected. Russia, I have not seen Russia there at all, but they're you know they they have their own vaccines, you know, and so they're making the same thing, but kind of in parallel. So playing the same game, but in a different sandbox. This is a very interesting question because uh, now we have this Ukraine conflict, we have the conflict with the energy. I think it's a very very big chess game, and it's a very big game where they where all those powers are trying to get the best out of it for themselves. Mm -hmm. And it would be very interesting to get to know more how Russia is, how are the, the plans of Russia? Now they're earning a lot with, with the energy. They just cut down one line, but they sell it sell it on, on the other side to other nations. And so it's a, it's a very global play, which is very difficult and very complicated to understand. But I think we can, if we go on trying to find out, we can learn a lot of this, mm -hmm. and we have to learn a lot about this. That such thing can never happen again. Yeah, exactly. Wow! Thanks ever so much. I think this is uh, we have to really dig deeper into this, and but it's it's uh, yeah pretty shocking and amazing. Thanks so much for your yeah. hard work. Yes. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, have, have a thank good you. evening. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good evening too. Thank you for waiting so long. Thank you. Uh, no, it's fine. It's okay. It's morning here. So, it's fine. so yeah. Okay. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye. Well, yeah, Wolfgang. Ich glaube, wir sind am Ende der Sitzung angekommen. Das war ja, ich finde, wir sind, also ich muss sagen, heute kommt es mir so And I have to say, it feels today like it was pretty heavy stuff. And uh, some loose ends have been tied up here, actually. And suddenly we can see other things. Yes, we really have to uh, look at the individual con uh, contributions 
and uh, make sure that we summarize it properly and also get the interpretation of it. Yes, I agree. Enormously important. We're at the end of the session now. There are many, both here and uh, out, outside, were uh, involved in developing stories. We'll see how things develop. If you uh, are um, willing to um, support our work, um, we would be happy uh, to get financial uh, support uh, uh, um, for well-known reasons, um, financial support um, to uh, continue our work. I won't go into more detail. So we have to dig deeper here. Um, it's really incredibly important, and I think it helps us understand better what's happening around the world right now as well. We've got so much support also in the time of crisis, and I also would like to thank um, for the patience in that uh, difficult problem solving, and I'd like to thank everybody who still believes in us. We try to live up to it. We have lots of people who offered to support and carry on the work with us. And it's not about us, it's about the good matter. And that's why thanks to everybody who helps. Yes, Wolfgang, you put that very um, nicely. I can only agree to that. Um, and despite uh, this mind-boggling information that we heard, I would like to uh, wish everybody a nice evening and a nice weekend. And we'll see you again next week. Um, see you. Thanks. Goodbye. The Epstein who, when you met him 10 years ago, he was convicted of soliciting prostitution from minors. What did you know about him when you were meeting with him, as you've said yourself, in the hopes of raising money? Uh, you know, I had dinners with him. Uh, I regret doing that. He had relationships with uh, people he said, you know, would give to Global Health, which is a uh, interest I have, you know, not nearly enough philanthropy goes in that direction. Uh, you know, those meetings were were a mistake. They didn't result in uh, what he purported, and I cut them off. You know, that goes back a long time ago now. Uh, there's, you know, so there's nothing new on that. It was reported that you continue to meet with him over several years, um, and that, in other words, a number of meetings. Um, what did you do when you found out about his background? Well, and, you know, I've said I regretted having those dinners, uh, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing new on that. Is there a lesson for you, for anyone else looking, looking at this? Well, he's dead, so, uh, you know, in general, you always have to be careful, uh, and, you know, the you know, I'm I'm very proud of what we've done in philanthropy. Very proud of the work of the foundation. Uh, you know, I, that's that's what I get up every day and focus on.